Check this out, Mom. I can save $200 on a Microsoft Surface 3 tablet when I get a Lumia smartphone on AT&T next. $200? For a college student like you, this is bigger than microwavable noodles. Whoa. Slow down, Mom. Save $200 on a Microsoft Surface 3 when bundled with any Lumia smartphone on AT&T Next. AT&T, mobilizing your world. Limited time offer select locations includes Microsoft Surface 3, 64 gigabyte only. Microsoft Surface 3 requires two-year agreement. Must activate wireless service on both devices. Early termination, activation, or upgrade, and other fees, charges, and restrictions apply. See a participating store for all for details. Blog Talk Radio. Graham Hancock. You're listening to Earth Ancients with Cliff Dunning. And here we are, right in the middle of uh, the holiday season. Hey, happy Saturday to you. I hope you're doing well. You know what? Christmas is upon us. So what does that mean? Well, it's the, uh, for me, it's a little bit of the hustle. It's the uh, uh, less work, more thinking about uh, family, friends, loved ones, and Christmas shopping. God, I, mean, I was in the store the other day, and uh, it was a madhouse. So <laughs> everybody's thinking about getting somebody something. Kind of crazy, though. You know, I, I'm not sure I, I like the shopping part of it. I, I like getting together. I like uh, meeting with friends and thinking about the end of the year kind of activities. But, boy, the shopping part of it, I could really do without. But, hey, we are in America America is the marketing capital of the world, so we gotta shop. It's it's ingrained in us. If we're an American, if we're born here, if we've come over here, it's like, okay, what kind of cash do I have? What can I get? I gotta buy something. I gotta get out there and get something. So <laughs> I don't know, boy. It's uh kind of crazy. Anyhow, lots to talk about today. Um I'm not sure if you have been on the Facebook page, but I posted a real interesting um, series of uh, images, uh, megalithic images, and it's 144 images on Facebook on the Earth Ancients uh, group page of machinery, machine-cut stonework that is prehistoric or ageless. And we get into... South America, we get into Central America, we get into Middle East, and the unique part of this uh, series of photographs, 144 photographs, is uh, according to Chris Dunn, the um, engineer who did a cr- tremendous amount of uh, of uh, research in Egypt, 
uh, there's an advanced form of machining done on the stonework of uh, pre-dynastic Egypt. Um, and this gallery shows great examples around the world of what appears to be examples of uh, machining, cutting with some kind of uh, uh, instrument, uh, softening of stone. This can be uh, uh, what appears to be uh, heated up stone, which is then um, manipulated in a way where it looks like it's been smoothed down with a trowel. We we spoke to uh, Jesus Gamara uh, a few weeks ago, and and uh, they he believed it was from uh, you know five hundred fifty thousand years ago and older. Uh, Hanapacha period, as he calls it. Um, but anyhow, I want uh, you to please take a look at this. 144 plus photographs of machining, advanced machining, advanced uh, manipulation of stonework in the form of, of megaliths. And there's megaliths in Egypt, and there's megaliths in South America and Peru. Um, and there's even some examples in, in Central America. So that is something that is kind of a a stocking stuff if you'll if you mind the reference so um uh really kind of fun to look at the other big news this week is in nova scotia and um uh the discovery of uh remains from what appears to be the romans um were found recently and um the tip of the iceberg, the, the the real cherished piece was a Roman sword. Um, and if you know about Rome, Rome was uh, founded seven hundred seven eighty five BC. It's old, that means it's you know over two thousand years old. A, a, a sword of this type being found in Nova Scotia, North America, makes us wonder um, what were they doing there. Obviously, that means that there were other cultures in America. Um, it kind of shifts our understanding of the history. And uh, with me right now is one of the uh, uh, individuals who were part of this research, Hutton Pulitzer. And um, he is uh, one of the principal investigators who actually was had done a tremendous amount of work over a long period of time. And um, Hutton, welcome to the program. Are you there? Here you Indeed. go. Hey. Yeah, no, I'm going to thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And, yes, this discovery has gone so viral. It's over 100,000 shares and 10 million reads. This thing has just taken off. And I think it's taken off because people know that basically we've been lied to about history. Mm -hmm. So what did you actually discover on Nova Scotia? Now, this is the uh, Oak Island uh portion, which is real close to, to the continental U.S., and um, th this uh, this sword is fantastic. It has a, uh, uh, a well-designed um, kind of ornate uh, handle, and of course, it's been um, uh, underwater for a period of time, but tell us a little bit about this, this discovery and some of the other, other artifacts. The sword, which kind of headlined, because people like that and they can understand the Romans, is only about one-fiftieth of the entire archaeological, anthropological report that we're releasing. The sword itself, mm -hmm. if you look at it closely, what makes it so phenomenal is this sword was basically legendary. There's others in existence, one in a museum in Italy, one with one of the best collectors and Roman artifact uh, experts in the world down in Florida, 
And we knew there were sister swords out here. And how can you, all of a sudden, boom, something shows up on Oak Island. You can see all the ancient gold in it, all the ancient metals in it. This sword actually has a secret. It actually serves a navigational purpose. It's not a fighting sword. It's a very, very important ceremonial sword. But here's how it happened. We're doing all our work on Curse of Oak Island Season 2. You saw our team diving down in 10X. Everybody knows the story. This island, uh, 140 acres, 220 years, John Wayne, Errol Flynn, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, all these guys involved in it. Nobody has any answers. Well, we were brought in Season 2 by the History Channel to help provide technology and answers to it. And lo and behold, bringing in our scan and mapping team, getting them involved, our dive team, we find out there's something, in fact, in the interior of this island, which might be a tomb, crypt, might have a sarcophagus, might have chest, etc. Well, while we're on the island, because we didn't really care about the artifacts that had been found in the past, I don't know you, but I can't get excited about coconut fiber, one leather shoe, one pair of scissors, and yeah. a parchment piece of paper. I can't get excited about that. So we decided, what do the ancient Americans tell us, because they've been there for over 10,000 10, years that live there natively, and then what would the island itself tell us? Well, when we started studying the natives that were there, because they are very unique. They've never been displaced like uh, United States natives. You know, they got moved to reservations. These people have always lived there. Well, all of a sudden, they start talking in their oral traditions of people who came in boats, people who came in boats and, and moved ancient stones, people who buried trees all over island, uh, an island where something was going on that if you set foot on it, you would burst into flames. I mean, there's all this historical record. And they have all these uh, pictographs and hieroglyphs that depict ships in ancient languages. And we're going, why in the hell are we seeing ancient Hebrew, ancient Phoenician, proto-Cadianite all over the place and on the island? So we were suspecting this may be different than what everybody thinks. So mm -hmm. when we started digging through the archives on the island, we found all these ancient languages and carvings on the island. And then we found a smoking gun in the archives. Some artifacts were pulled out of a tree, okay? They were basically crossbow bolts. They were buried inside one of the trees, and this tree grew around it. When they were sent off to be tested by the United States military, the United States military weapons testing lab came back and said, these are from the ancient Iberian Peninsula, and they're from 560 B.C. What were well, the artifacts the that they were testing that, that came back as to being in, uh, to Europe? Well, what one of the, you know, Oak Island is called Oak Island not because of indigenous oak trees. It's called mm -hmm. Oak Island because of these very weird oak trees that weighs way above the canopy. Well, one of those last trees was still standing, and the legend used to be you'll only find the treasure when the last tree is cut down, right? Well, when they cut down that last tree, and they finally got to cutting it up for firewood, when they cut it up, they found embedded in these, uh, in the wood, deep, deep in the wood, three Basically, what you would call them is crossbow bolts, very ancient mm. crossbow bolts, not arrowheads, four-sided, uh, armor-piercing crossbow bolts of wow. a very ancient Levant manufacturer. Those got sent off to a testing lab, like I said, the military, and they said 560 B.C., and two American universities looked at it. Both of them came back and said, do not ever send us again. Do not mention our names. We do not want to be involved. This is, we can't do this, we'll, we'll lose our tenure. So we knew something was up. So we're collecting all this data, DNA, plant DNA. There's, there's animals around the island that shouldn't be there that come from the Roman era. There's plants around the island that shouldn't be, that come from the Roman era. There is over mm -hmm. 2,000 individual documented symbols 
of these ancient Mariner languages there. So we're putting together a report, getting to go. And as we're getting ready to do our dive, one of Dan Blankenship's, you know, he's the old man you see on the air, been there for 50 years. One of his very good family fans finally came forward, right? And said, look, years and years and years ago, uh, the family was out scalloping. You know, that's a rake where they drag over the bottom, right? And this sword was brought up. It snagged something, and then it popped up, and it came up, and they had this sword. Well, of course, they freaked out in Nova Scotia. Here's why. For time immemorial Nova Scotia, you cannot dive on a shipwreck without a permit. You can't even look for a shipwreck without a permit, mm -hmm. right? If you stumble across it, see one under the water, dive down and touch it, you're going to jail. So they freaked out, plus they were scalloping out of, out of season. So they kind of kept this quiet. Now, interestingly, in 2009, Nova Scotia outlawed all shipwreck diving. So that made hmm. it even worse. Well, the guides finally came forward because of the success of Curse of Oak Island and the wonderful work Prometheus does, and 7 million viewers of this show, and said, we can't hold this back any longer. we got to show you. So I'm coming through. I bring in my uh, X-ray phosphorescent technology, which is a the new way you test metals. It's not a metallurgy test, you know, like you scrape off a little part and test it. It looks at it atomically. Now, if something was a fake, like copper or bronze, right, and you made it, it would be out of pure materials, pure copper, pure tin to make bronze, right? There would be no uh, iridium. There would be no platinum. There would be no gold, all this other stuff that used to be mixed. Why? Because we take it out now because it's so expensive, like rhodium, right? We take it out. Well, all of a sudden, we do the test on the atomic label, and not only does it have all the ancient metals from the mines and show where the metal, which mines it came from, because that's now mapped over there, but it right. matches the radio-led isotopes of other known Roman artifacts over there. And we're kind of going, holy smoke. That same time the sword comes forward, Rick picks me up from the airport, says, you got to see this. He says, this is pretty controversial. And I said, does it confirm our theory or your theory? And he kind of laughed and he says, well, unfortunately, it confirms your theory. And the same time that happened, not only were we able to confirm much later a, a suspected shipwreck, we did other scans by going back after the season was done, but we found actual burial mounds, monolithic stones, all kinds of this. So all this kind of came together rapidly at once. So basically, we started putting together the report. The sword is only one-fiftieth of the thing, but it's monumental. It has been confirmed against other uh, authentic ones because this is a, a sister sword. It's a ceremonial sword, not something you kind of go fight with. Imagine, Cliff, if I was going to send you on an ancient mission, and I'm, quote-unquote, your emperor, and I line up my ten guys, and I say, guys, here's what I need you to find, and here's what I need you to do, and I hand you this ceremonial sword because it does three yeah. things. Reminds you what the mission is. It gives you the imprimatur that you're going to do it. And there is an interesting ancient magnetic pointer built into the sword, wow. which, only points, which only points true north. Now, so, let me ask oh, you, did the, did the History Channel uh, fund a, or get the permit to allow you guys to, di uh, to dive offshore to, to do some additional uh, searching or what? What happened? No, that's the, that's the complication. Nova Scotia has absolutely forbidden shipwreck diving. Mm -hmm. We already had our permits to do side scan sonar, and, and there were already, by the Navy, bathymetric surveys, which uh, did the bottom. So between using bathymetric surveys, all our additional side scanning sonar, and the permits we have to even search, 
we were mm-hmm. able to pinpoint these things down. The wreck wow. is there. We're not going to pinpoint it for people because it's in very shallow water. But, you know, the kicker about it is Oak Island, when most of these events occurred, was not an island. And that's why so many non-answers for over 220 years, because everybody's trying to put a pirate pin in it, right? But the fact mm-hmm. of the matter is, if you look at the event horizon, the water at that time in Nova Scotia was 60 feet less. Now, here's the kicker. The waters around Oak Island only average about 25 feet. So Oak Island was never an island. It was a very ancient kind of point, promenory, right? Oh, which is, interesting. Uh, which is, yeah. Right, which is called a drummel. It's a particular curved type of rock. And there was an mm-hmm. ancient river that runs down the north side, down this rock, and all these springs spew out of this rock. And it kind of goes wow. out into the ocean much further out. And that's why people have been off and whatever, because they're trying to think it's an island, and it never was. Wow. Now, uh, what does the uh, future uh, hold for this research now? Uh, does this uh, uh, open the door and allow you to get uh, additional uh, uh, releases to do more scanning, more digging? Because obviously if you find artifacts, and this is just the source of one of many artifacts, that somebody's going to want to get in there and uh, either archaeologists or, or anthropologists or, or field researchers to do some more uh, some digs, wouldn't you think? Yes, yes. Even though Nova Scotia has totally forbidden, made it illegal, and will not approve any shipwreck salvage in Nova Scotia, an interesting thing has happened. Now, the first response every detractor in the world wants to call you a nut because they need to beat it down before it gets traction. Unfortunately, that's too late. Second part of it is a very unique thing happened. Two very prestigious global organizations, which you would know the name of, but I'm not prepared to uh, announce them yet because we're still doing our documents together. But imagine something very royal reaching out and saying, we think you're on to something, what you've seen, and they too have offered to participate. And I think with all of the universities, the AAPS, and a lot of people that are now involved and these two other prestigious organizations, I think we may be able to pull off a and get a proper archaeological dig on an island that has been raped and actually get a proper underwater archaeology project going. And I think what you're seeing is history at the precipice of being rewritten, and it's going to force people to take a hard look at what's real. Let's, before, before we conclude, I just want to give, let's get, let's get the base, back to basics on this. So the discovery of a Roman sword and artifacts around the same time period mean what? Mean, what does that mean to those of us who live in the United States? Here's what we think happened. The, the same symbols that occur on Oak Island and Nova Scotia, these symbols running counterclockwise go to Cape Britain, Baffin Island, Greenland, Iceland, Netherlands, UK, Spain. In fact, the Roman departing port if you took a line and drew from Nova Scotia and drew, drew, uh, drew it straight across to Spain, it's the same symbols and the same coin artifacts, the same plant artifacts, all jump from the gates of Hercules, which is the Iberian Straits. It comes out, goes up Spain, you know, UK, and it hops all the way around. The Romans didn't sail across the Atlantic. The Romans were experts at island hopping and short jumps. What we think we'll be able to prove with this and with the other scientists involved, they were doing island jumps 
and they would jump in, you know, UK, Netherlands, Iceland, Greenland, Baffin Island, all the way around. They jumped, jump, 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 and made it here. Uh, we think it's much older, and we think Oak Island was kind of like just one of this incredibly big known places of where you stop, where you resupply, where you get great water. So people will discount and say, well, the Romans couldn't sail across the ocean. That's the wrong way to look at it. Wow. So this is something that they typically did as island hop from, from Rome, huh? Wow. Well, th- well think well, about I it. Mean... Remember, people think, Rome or, people think Romans are Rome. They weren't. Romans and the Roman territory go back to the Carthage culture, etc. They're the entire Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, all of North Africa, all of the Mediterranean islands, every one of them. That is all island hopping. So it is something they were very expert at. And please remember, people forget this. If you sailed out of the gates of Hercules, right, the, the, the Strait of Gibraltar, and you just yeah. went out a few miles, you'll hit a thing called the Portuguese Current. If you hit that Portuguese Current, which is what this symbol lines up to, and you put your oars in your boat and didn't have oars and you didn't even have a sail, and you sat there at the right time when Pallades rises on the horizon in the east, and you see Pallades a certain way, your boat will float counterclockwise all the way to Oak Island, Nova Scotia. That's where you end up. And on just a very final note, that very star constellation of Pallades that can only be seen from the east looking west, its orientation is carved right there off Oak Island. Fascinating. Fascinating. Hey, well, listen, thank you for this uh, bit of information. It's a, it's a, just an amazing discovery. Uh, we'll, we'll have you on again. Um, I am going to post some information. I have posted some information on the Facebook uh, Earth Ancients group page. Um, but if you have anything else you want to send, any photographs or whatever, the article that came out in um, uh, UK Daily was was great. Uh, I saw it the other day. That means that this 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 whole story has gone vir- uh, uh, virtual or Viral, yeah, that was Jim. Me. Yeah, that was Jim Agam, and 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 she's with the Boston Standard. She broke the story. More's okay. coming, and you can actually go to our site, which is investigatinghistory.org. We do a okay. daily uh, newspaper about this stuff. If you go there and just subscribe, so you get a free newspaper, we'll put you on the list. And the moment for listeners, for the moment, if they're there when we release the official big honking white paper, we'll send it to all those people as well. Okay, I'll definitely post that uh, that link. So, uh, Hutton, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate it. We will be in touch, and let's uh, get back together and review this in, in January. Thank you so very much. Have a great holiday, and thank you for all your great, dedicated hard work and content. Thanks, Hutton. Have a great holiday. I'll catch you again. You too. So that's uh, Hutton Pulitzer, and uh, boy, uh, I, if you haven't seen the photos of this Roman sword, it's fascinating. <laughs> they really made well. The steel is very firm. If it's been underwater, uh, as long as it, I think it has been, you know, a thousand years or more, it's held up very well. It shows that their their uh, metallurgy was was really solid. They they mixed the the metals and made a really solid um, uh, sword. We've talked uh, with Graham Hancock a couple of weeks ago, and uh, his new book, Magician of the God, is I'm still working through it. It's, it's really a, a masterpiece of uh, what has happened to our planet 
the civilizations uh, that we we don't know about, but we have evidence of their presence in the in the ruins. And Graham features uh, a gentleman named Randall Carlson quite prominently in the beginning of the book, who really brings a a, uh, a solid perspective on the geological changes, the the violent, the catastrophic changes that occurred on the earth thousands and thousands of years ago. And uh, I've been wanting to get Randall on the show for months. Uh, He's very, very busy. And we are really fortunate today to have him with us to talk about uh, changes in the earth, civilizations that were here before, and uh, catastrophic events, catastrophic events, which basically are historic in nature because they wipe uh, the surface clean of any evidence of a civilization except for those uh, ruins, those uh, megaliths that can withstand uh, a current change or, or, or a geological change. Now, Randall Carlson is a master builder and archaeological, excuse me, a architectural designer, teacher, and he's a renegade scholar. He's 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 booked four decades of study, research, and exploration into the interface between ancient mysteries and modern science, and um, he's coming today uh, to us from um, Georgia. Randall, thank you for joining us today. Really great to have you. Yeah, I'm here. Finally, I, I caved in. You, 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 <laughs> you were uh, unrelenting, and I finally just caved in and said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so here we well, are. I mean... You're uh you're the you're the YouTube darling, my friend, because you're you're everywhere. If you if you punch in Randall Carlson, you'll see him talking about sacred geometry uh, or lecturing uh, with Graham in the uh, mountains of Wa- State Washington, Washington State, uh, or um, traveling to to various areas that really show evidence of these uh, uh, catastrophic events. You know, I, I got to ask you, and, and I um, I have seen a few of the, of the videos which are fascinating, and I really recommend our listeners um, consider uh, uh, going to YouTube and punching that in, Randall Carlson, and listening to one of his um, uh, his uh, presentations. But I, I really want to ask you this, and that is, when did you get involved in this? Because this is not something that you dab in lightly. It's it's a it's something that you you must have been hiking or, or or camping or or something, and you thought to yourself, "Something's up here. There's just something's weird." What, what was the what was the trigger that really got you interested in in uh, in this this field of study? Well, you know, it wasn't like a sudden epiphany where <clears throat> all of a sudden I was, "Hey, there's this whole story." It was kind of a thing that kind of emerged in bits and pieces. So I don't really can't really put. A, a marker on it and say, okay, this is where it started. Although, um, you know, it, I think it certainly goes back to growing up in, in rural Minnesota and where I grew up was right on the edge of the great, uh, the southern margin of the great Laurentide ice sheet. And so during that last phase of the what's called the late Wisconsin ice age, the, the glacier margin fluctuated north and south, back and forth, right in that area where I lived. And so it created a very you know, a very unique landscape, and we had property on a on a lake that was, you know, Minnesota is referred to as the land of ten thousand lakes. Right. Well, those lakes yeah. are 
basically meltwater puddles that are left over from the melting of the great ice sheets. And so, mm. you know, you grow up in a landscape like that, and, and I was always just interested in science. So I had, you know, books on all of this kind of stuff that I got. Um, you know, we're go- we're back in the 50s now and in, in, in 60s. But, um, you know, we had a big erratic sitting not quite in our backyard, but it was right there uh, next to our property, you know, an erratic boulder. Do you know what that is? No. Erratic is a, is, a, is a boulder that has been moved. Usually, in the in the older definition, it's it's considered to have been moved exclusively by ice. Uh, we now know mm-hmm. that a lot of erratic boulders have been moved by uh, floods, and we can talk about that a little bit. But there was a, an erratic boulder. And so basically, what an erratic boulder is, it's a boulder that's out of place. It's a boulder who who does not. It's not consistent with the with the local bedrock, and so it's been transported from elsewhere. And in the usual explanation, which is in most cases correct, is that it was quarried and then transported by the glacial ice. And so, you know, there was this big six foot boulder, you know, just sitting there next to the lake. And I used to play on the thing and sit there and wonder, how did this big rock get here? What's this <laughs> rock doing here? You know. Um, but then growing up, you know, we'd spend a lot of time, you know, in the, um, uh, you know, Boundary Waters canoe area up along the, the shores of, of uh, Lake Superior. Uh, I used to go to a place called um, St. Croix Falls, which is on the uh, St. Croix River, which flows uh, into the Mississippi there uh, just near Minneapolis. And there are a series of these giant potholes up there. I took actually took Graham to this place. Um, a year ago last October, and what you have is is you have this basalt bedrock flanking uh, the St. Croix River, and up on the surface of the of this bedrock, you have these extraordinary potholes that are, oh, anywhere from 10 to like 25 feet wide and up to 80 feet deep, and these potholes are made by what is called culking, which is uh, when you have extreme turbulence in water when you have well when you have an extreme flood and the water is very turbulent um you'll get this um vorticular motion you know it's very like you know water is a a fluid like as is air and when you get two contrasting air masses together um you can get vorticular motion it essentially turns into a tornado so a colk is a an underwater tornado and uh, what a colk will do will p- pick up uh, rocks and boulders, and it'll be spinning extremely fast in, in these deep, very swiftly moving, turbulent floodwaters. And it'll literally become like a drill, a giant drill. And, you know, in the old models of geology, everything was considered to be extremely gradual. Um, yeah. But there was really no explanation for how something like this could form so gradually. And we're talking about features that are on bedrock surfaces that are 60 or 80 feet or so above the the present river. So the present river had nothing to do with their creation. Um, but it's quite well established now, even when you go to visit the place, it's it's a kind of a park there now, an interstate park it's called, and it's kind of a collaboration between uh, the state governments of Minnesota and Wisconsin. They've established it as a park, but they'll even have a little display there talking and admitting, yeah, that these very huge floods came through there at the end of the last ice age. And so the colking, what that does is it basically picks up debris and then it spins it around really fast. You have to just visualize an underwater tornado and it'll just drill its way right into the bedrock. And 
the rate at which it is done is going to be way out of scale with typical gradualistic phenomena. And you can see um, this kind of um, erosion in bedrock really all over. I've looked at hundreds of examples like here in the southern Appalachians near where I live. Um, they're not on the same scale as what you see along the St. Croix River, but they are still some of them would be quite impressive, you know, six or eight feet wide and, and, and ten feet deep. And when you see those in the bedrock, that's a pretty much sure sign that at some point an extreme flood passed through that area. So that was one of the places we used to go to regularly as a kid. And I used to, you know, look at those things. And, uh, you know, my grandmother was kind of very much into the sort of the regional natural history of the area, and, and she would – kind of indicate to me a little bit that, you know, maybe it was some kind of big floods or something like that. Then, uh, summer of 1969, there's a place uh, south southwest of Minneapolis called Flying Cloud Airport, and they used to have rock concerts out there, daytime rock hmm. concerts. So every week, you know, you'd go out there, and, and, you know, this was the peak of, you know, everything that's going on in 1969. And so I remember going out there one day, and... Uh, you know, it was like a break or something in the music. And, and, and it, it's where this airport is. It's on the top of these flat bluffs that are about you know, a couple of hundred feet high overlooking the Minnesota River Valley. Okay, so I had I wandered over and was standing on the edge of this bluff looking out. And down below me, I could see the, 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 the modern-day uh, Minnesota River, which is not really a particularly significant river. I mean, um, <clears throat> but then on the far in the distance, about four or five miles away, actually, I could see a, another set of bluffs. And I remember standing there, looking down at the modern-day Minnesota River, flowing within a channel, and it had small bluffs on either side, maybe, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 feet on either side. And as I stood there, I looked out, and I had this kind of this, I guess I would call it an epiphany. I, I, I thought, well, that looks... This, this this big valley that I'm looking at looks like a big version of that little channel that I'm looking at down there, you know, 500, 600 feet away down below me. And and I had this impression that just never left me. Like, And now that I look back on it, I understand that, that what I was seeing was a principle in geology that's, that's quite well known amongst geologists. It's known as scale invariance, which hmm. basically when you look at a phenomena and and it it has a certain form to it but it it will be a similar form regardless of the scale so oftentimes if you pick up a geology textbook or you're looking at a, a at a journal article or something about some geological feature or outcrop you'll notice something that in every picture there will be something so you have a sense of scale if it's a smaller thing usually the typical thing is that they put the rock pick in the picture, the rock hammer, so that you have a sense of the scale, or they'll they'll do a put a meter stick or something, or if it's a larger scale, you'll just have a person standing there, so you so that the reader can look at it and go, okay, I understand the scale of this because you take that out, and then you're looking at it, and and you you may not really know, am I looking at a at a cliff that's you know hundreds and hundreds of feet high, or am I looking at an outcrop that's only ten feet high because that's scale invariance, and and the Water formation, water features are scale invariant. So you can go out, you know, I'm, I'm constantly, because in my building business, I'm constantly, you know, involved with excavating and so forth and, and cutting. Um, like you, you go in when you're about to uh, 
build a new structure, and of course you you grade it out, you you, you bulldoze right. it, and you, and then now you've got this freshly exposed earth surface. Well, in the course as you're building, you know you may have rainfalls and storms and stuff like that will that will come in, and what it does is it creates a, a miniature landscape. Like if you look at some of these miniature landscapes, and I you know photographed a lot of them. I mean you look at them, and then you like look at a, a topographical map, say of Utah. Well. The features are precisely the same. You'll you'll see, um, you know, you'll see channels, bifurcating channels. You'll see what's called anastomosing or, or braided branching streams. You'll see mini cataracts that look just like, you know, a miniature version of of Niagara Falls, Horseshoe Falls mm-hmm. at, at Niagara, and and so all of these things are duplicated on multiple scales. You'll see ripples. One of the things that I took and I. Th- think there's a picture of it in in graham's book uh one of the great ripple fields out in the pacific northwest that i took him to see where you have these um uh you know anytime you walk on a beach or or on a uh, next to a river or creek and you're walking on a sandbar you know everybody has seen the ripples that the 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 little uh you know that 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 the water will form well typically on on a normal oh like here in near, right near where I live, there's a there's a, a creek called Peachtree Creek, and and I've been kind of like studying the, the the geomorphological evolution of that really for like 20 years now because every time we get a big storm, a big rain, or something through here, it'll modify that channel. You can go in there and you can see all of these features being formed. It's it's like a, a, a hydrological laboratory, and and so you can see all of these forms that are duplicated on an extremely large scale wherever these mega floods have occurred. So I took Graham to see okay. well, a couple of these um, massive current ripple fields where you've got, oh, the, 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 one of the famous ones is in a place called Camas Prairie, which is actually in western Montana. Right. And this thing is something like, oh, God, what is it, five, six, seven miles from north to south, and the current ripples themselves, the big ones, are 30 and 40 feet in amplitude and, and, and 150 up to 300 feet in wavelength. Mm-hmm. This was just an extraordinary current that came through there, and of course now it's basically just a a a, a dry valley. There's you know maybe right. some little creeks and stuff flowing in there, but this is clearly evidence that something extraordinary once happened there. So, anyways, right. I, I would you know at this at this um, sixty nine standing there looking at this at this valley below me, and that was I had no concept in my mind of the idea of scale and variance whatsoever. But I had this sense that, wait a second, could this valley once have been, you know, fully, you know, filled with water? And then I just kind of forgot about it because it seemed so extreme and outside of, you know, my everyday experience, all of that. Mm-hmm. Well, then the next summer, uh, I spent the whole summer, uh, you know, I, a couple of buddies of mine and, and myself, we, we left Minnesota and we spent the whole summer Oh, traveling around um, through Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, uh, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana. So I was hiking, camping. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's really where I I would say I just got really just almost obsessed with these landscapes. Um, What in the world is this? And, of course, back then, you know, the, the prevailing paradigm was still everything happens one grain of sand and one drop of water at a time. So but you were questioning that. You were questioning, going, "This something's up here." You're looking at all these, these uh, cut valleys and, and these landforms that are that are 
uh, cut with with water, obvious water or stones being pushed and muck and 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 uh, yeah. uh, you know severe cuts, uh, traumatic cuts, and you're kind of going, okay, something's up here. <laughs> yeah, basically that's exactly right. And 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 okay. I think what what really sealed the deal for me was was traveling up through the Columbia Gorge. Um, okay. I don't know if you've ever traveled, uh, say, between the Tri Cities area of, of of southeastern Washington just, and just Portland. Just within, just within a few miles, not not too much in the wood to the to the raw areas. No, I haven't. Uh, okay, well, it's spectacular. I mean, it's it's just awesome. It? And you've got these massive deltas that that issue out of the tributary valleys, and you have these mm-hmm. extreme cliffs with these magnificent waterfalls plunging over, you know, um, and, and I just, it, it, the whole experience of traveling that just blew my mind. And, and so after that summer, I, I was, it just, it sort of just stimulated an interest in geology in the history of the yeah. earth. I thought this is really, God, there's, a, there's some kind of, this landscape is, is trying to tell us some kind of story, but <clears throat> at the time it just seemed to me like whatever it was, it was so beyond, you know, my understanding, and I had no real, you know, working knowledge of geology at the time. Yeah, But then as, as the 70s proceeded, um, yeah. it was a number of things that sort of came together. Um, for example, you know, a lot of reading. I was, I've always been an avid reader, so, you know, we mentioned Velikovsky early, and early on before the, um, our, our conversation started here. And, you know, I read a couple of his books, probably in the early 70s. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, like you mentioned, you know, a lot of his, his work is, is, is pretty sketchy. Um, but, you know, he yeah. was working back in the 1950s. He right. was speculating. And, and, you know, basically, <clears throat> there was, as I see it, there were two parts to his work. The one, there was the, his, his astrophysics, and then there was his geology. And if you, if you look at the two of them, you realize that, well, the, the scenarios that he invoked to explain the geology that he was looking at were were pretty you know pretty ex- extreme and and un- yeah. incredible in the sense of not really being believable and he got just savaged for for that you know the idea he that did. that yeah. Venus was was thrown out of Jupiter and somehow settled into this near perfect circular orbit. I mean, the astronomers and the astrophysicists, they wrote a book called The Scientist Confront Velikovsky, which yes. I then read <laughs> on the heels of, of reading these other two books. And, and what I came away with it was, was that they basically destroyed his scenario of, of what caused this, you know, which, which he basically basically saw that by looking at ancient evidence and looking at stories in mythology, he concluded that, well, they're talking about a comet here. But back in the 50s, he didn't understand that a comet itself could have such extreme effects on the Earth if you had a direct Mm -hmm. encounter either with the cometary nucleus or a close encounter where the Earth was swept through uh, its debris trail. But and so what he then did was he extrapolated from a comet up to Venus and, that, and thought, well, the, Venus was the comet. And I think that's right. where he went astray. But what yeah. I noticed when I, when I read the, the, the critiques of his work is that they didn't touch his catastrophism. In other words, Earth and upheaval yeah. came through because what he did in Earth upheaval 
was he didn't really speculate too much on what caused geological catastrophes or mass extinctions, but what he did was he documented all of the stuff that was at that time, uh, you know, accessible that was kind of lying around on the fringes of normal explanations, uniformitarian right. explanations, assembled it into one the one place, and, and that's what really impressed me was well, hey, his his catastrophism, his astrophysics got ripped to shreds. His yeah. catastrophism came through unscathed. So yeah, that's what left an impression on me, is that he would uh, describe uh, caves filled with uh, the bones of, of uh, saber-toothed tigers and mammoth, uh, all uh, yeah. undulated and, and crushed in, in, with a force that must have been water. Uh, and, and that's he left a huge impression on me on that. But I want to ask you, um, uh, before we get into the evidence of these uh, floods and these uh, catastrophic events. Um, the thing that, that really appeals to me about Graham Hancock is that he, and, and, and I've had a, 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 I've questioned history since I was a small kid, simply because we are uh, forced to believe that history is, is uh, uh, you know, step after step after step. And, uh, that we we as a society began in Mesopotamia in the in the valley there the Euphrates Valley uh, and the Egyptians were the first people so on and so forth and uh, until I got to be an adult and started traveling a little bit to see that that was completely wrong and, and reading on my own uh, Graham in his first book Fingerprints of the Gods. Uh, shows evidence of extremely old civilizations using megalithic uh, techniques to build with. Um, and, and I want to ask you, um, Plato gives us evidence, or he, evidence, not really evidence, but talks about Atlantis and then the destruction of Atlantis. Would you say uh, that uh, the younger Dryas was the the uh, the damage that was inflicted on the place we know as in Atlantis because not only of the of the rising waters which could cause a flood but also uh, tectonic shifts be, uh, forced uh, onto the Earth because of an asteroid hit or or something. Would you say that that's probably the best known ancient chronicled? Uh, or document of a uh, asteroid hit on on our planet. Well, yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because if you if you actually read uh, his two dialogues, Critias and well, Timaeus was his first one, Critias. Timaeus, second yeah, one. yeah. He he opens that actually um, with with by recounting the legend of Phaeton, um, you know, which which clearly is is some kind of an asteroid or comet or or, or meteorite impact um, mm -hmm. and and he doesn't explicitly tie that in with the story of Atlantis, but it's pretty clear that you know he prefaces the story by recounting that particular myth and um, you know he he's also um, pretty uh, clear that you know he's making the point um, Actually, I, I can quote it right here. Um, it, and, and this is in the uh, the Jawa translation of of, of Timaeus. Um, there is a story which even you have preserved that once upon a time, Phaeton, the son of Helios, having yoked the steeds in his father's chariot, because he was not able to drive them in the path of his father. And if you if you know the story, you know Phaeton was the son of Helios and 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 grew up 
not knowing that his father was this, you know, the great sun god, and then he was mm-hmm. being teased at, at school because um, all of his schoolmates, you know, they were bragging about their fathers and how wonderful and great they were, and and so Phaeton goes home and he's really sad and depressed and tells his mother. And she says, well, okay, I'm going to tell you something. Your father is the sun god, uh, Helios. So he decides he's going to go and make a, 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 a voyage. He, he eventually ends up there um, at the gates of the, of the gates of the sun where his, his father is. And, you know, because of the way the whole the structure of the Greek mythology, you know, the, the gods have pretty much unlimited license to do anything, except mm-hmm. once they make a promise, they're, they're bound to keep it. So... When Phaeton comes to his father, his father's so overjoyed to see him that he, he says, I'm going to grant you any boon you ask for. So then Phaeton says, oh, okay, well, let me drive your chariot of the sun. And then at that point, Helio says, well, wait a second, I meant anything but that. But then Phaeton is so insistent that his father finally caves in and says, okay, I'm going to let you do it, uh, but you've got to hold those reins tight. So Phaeton mounts the chariot, and as soon as the gates open and the great steeds pull the chariot out, from that point on, it's pretty much a lost cause because instantly the steeds know that Phaeton, um, you know, is not in control. And so, in the when you actually read the myth, both Bullfinch has a very good account of of the myth in his in his mythology. It describes the chariot careening what 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 is clearly through the the plane of the ecliptic by going through the signs of the zodiac but then it careens out of that path which is the normal path of the sun descends down to earth and then you know sets the whole earth on fire or or large regions of it and cities collapse and triggers this great catastrophe mm-hmm. and then um finally um because the oceans are boiling poseidon you know goes and entreats Zeus, you got to do put a stop to this. So Zeus hurls his thunderbolts, and, and they strike the Phaeton and describes how he crashes to earth near the river Eridanus, and then his sisters, um, who are the Heliades, are weeping over the, the, um, the death of their brother. And if you read the story on the Heliades, what you find out is that their tears then fall to earth and cause the great flood. So okay. here you have all of the elements right there preserved in this mythical story. So anyways, uh, Plato opens the account of Atlantis. Now, now get this. He says, as I'll pick it up, pick up the narrative. He says, because Phaeton was not able to drive the chariot in the path of his father, he burned up all that was on earth and was himself destroyed by a thunderbolt. And now here's the kicker. This is what Plato now says. Now this has the form of a myth, but it really signifies a declination or a declining, a descending of the bodies moving around the earth and in the heavens and a great conflagration of all things upon the earth recurring at long intervals of time. So that is how Plato opens the story of Atlantis by recounting that particular myth, which I think has a great deal of significance and, and, and has relevance to the story that then follows in, in the two dialogues. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. It's funny because uh, there's so many native myths that are, uh, you know, the sky is falling kind of attitudes and uh, uh, we, you have to run to the highest peak and so on and so forth, where this is more of a myth that has actually got a lot of truth in it, it sounds like. Uh, 
so w- w- would you um i mean what do you think about atlantis i mean uh, you, you studied ancient uh, study ancient culture when we say atlantis a lot of people go well poo poo there's no evidence but there is evidence in the uh the uh settlements that are all over the world uh that come from this great continent wouldn't you say uh yeah and you know that's been pretty much dismissed um Back in the 70s, there was a group of geologists and scientists that got together with the the express purpose of basically discrediting the whole idea of Atlantis. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what happened was, have you ever heard of Ignatius Donnelly? Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he wrote the book in 18... Yeah, 1882, um, Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, and then that was followed by Ragnarok, the Age of Fire and Travel. And what's interesting about that is, you know, way back in the 1880s, he's proposing that there was a great destruction uh, wrought upon the Earth by a comet. And um, anyways, you know, his book became, was republished, uh, probably in the wake of Velikovsky with the... uh, you know the the the, the, re, the the reawakening of interest in catastrophism and so forth, and and it was <clears throat> I think the republishing of his book that that really kind of stimulated a lot of the interest in Atlantis that we see, um, particularly you know from the 50s to the 70s. You know uh, mm-hmm. there was a heightened interest in in Atlantis. So um, there was a uh, a group I think it was it was Dorothy B. Vitaliano. 1978. It was called Atlantis from the geological point of view, <clears throat> and um, basically, idea idea was is that you know put forth. Well, did Plato mean it literally, or did he just mean it as a metaphor for his concept of the idealized state? Well, I my take on it is that it was both. That he was using an ancient tradition, yes, to. Um, to, to express his concept of what the idealized state was. But that didn't mean that because he used that in that capacity that the, that the other elements, which he repeatedly states through the dialogues, are, are he says this is true, this is, this is true information here. You know, if you actually carefully read the dialogues, I think in at least three places he's saying, you know, this is this is true. This is real history. This is this is what I'm reporting. I'm just reporting real history as I heard it, right? right. Um, but it, but but so so basically, what these geologists did was they concluded that everything was just metaphorical, um, and or or just simply Plato's in, invention. And they go on to address Donnelly's work, and in Donnelly's work on on Atlantis, the Antediluvian world. He outlines 13 propositions in support of which he then marshals all of this different kinds of evidence. And they point out of, of these, and this is paleontological and, and zoological and, and um, <clears throat> you know, ethnographic, uh, linguistic, all of these different things that he saw these, this continuity between, you know, new world and old world. And, and then he interpreted that the commonality, the link there was Atlantis. Well, then, in this work by these geologists, um, they basically point out that two of the propositions are relevant to a geologically oriented discussion. And the first proposition was that there once existed in the Atlantic Ocean um, 
west of the Pillars of Heracles, a large island, which is actually not what Plato says. He uses the word nereos, which actually can be uh, uh, translated as islands, plural, rather than just a single large island. And so, so the first proposition was that there existed this island in the in the more conventional interpretations. And the second proposition is that there was a convulsion of nature, a great catastrophe, and the whole island sunk into the ocean, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what the geologists do is they basically say, well, um, what was known about the, the knowledge of the ocean floor in the 1970s, they said, what we now know about the, the, the geology of the ocean floor, we can, we can dismiss those two propositions, that there was this large island and that it sunk in a catastrophe. And <clears throat> so they basically say, from the geological point of view, we can ascertain that, you know, it, it's all fiction. And therefore, the other 11 propositions of, of Donnelly, we can dismiss those as well, because if the geology is not there, then the rest of it doesn't make sense. Oh, interesting. Here's the thing, though. Yeah. Yeah, but here, here's the thing. The geology is not inconsistent at all. If you actually begin to look, it's particularly even going back to the 50s, um, you know, with some of the first uh, expeditions um, that that begin to map the seafloor, and subsequent research is very consistent with the idea that there was major seismic activity and events along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge at the end of the last ice age. And, I mean, this is, this is not only theoretically plausible, there's empirical data to support it as well. I mean, the finding of, of, of shallow water coprolites, for example, that are two miles below the, the ocean. You know, these are, these are, you know, this is basically crab dung, but from the species, it's, it's species of crabs that would have lived in water no more than a couple of hundred feet deep, maximum. Mm-hmm. But here there's these extensive coprolites that are two miles below the ocean. And, and beach sand that has been found, and what appear to be shorelines on the um, flanks of the Azores Plateau. I mean, on and on. The, the, the geological evidence is, is, the empirical geological evidence, is, is very supportive of the idea that there was a considerable subsidence. And, and most of the dating of, of these events does fall right within that window of, of you know, somewhere between ten and 13 or 14,000 years ago. And... and okay. um, Theoretically, see, it makes sense because in ge- geophysics there's a principle called isostasy, which basically, you know, plate tectonics and continental drift looks at horizontal movements of the Earth's crust. Isostasy looks at vertical movements. And so when you have, uh, for example, a great ice sheet uh, building up like we had over North America during the last ice age, that ice sheet might be a mile up to even possibly two miles thick. Well, that is an incredible amount of weight crushing down on the, the land surface beneath it. And what happens is, is that the, the crust of the earth literally can sink. It pushes down right into the, into the mantle. And wow. um, because of the release of that ice at the end of the last ice age, the center of the North American craton, this area centered around Hudson Bay, began to rebound. And in some cases, it looks like the, the rebounding has, has brought it up 1,000 to 1,500 feet above what it was when um, the ice was there, see? Okay, well, what's happening is that ice is melting. You have the, the, the weight being released off of the North American continent, and, it's, and you have this enormous mass transfer then into the ocean basins. 
and a considerable considerable amount of that weight that was was released in the melting of the ice was transferred initially into the North Atlantic. Okay, well, <clears throat> if you if you understand the, the geophysics, where there has to be, <clears throat> excuse me, there has to be a compensation. It's it's just like imagine if you've got a big inflated beach ball, okay, and you're holding it out in front of you, and then you you compress it. You you have one hand that would be at the North Pole and one at the South Pole, and you squeeze it down, right? Okay, so the diameter of, of that spherical beach ball diminishes along between your, your the axis of compression but then it expands in the in in the uh the direction normal or at 90 degrees to that mm-hmm. you, you see what i'm saying where, yeah. where you're compressing one way it's bulging the other way and, and and that's a simplified model but it basically does convey the idea of what isostasy does and so what happens is is now you're dumping releasing all of this weight from off of North America, what that now does is causes the, the surface of the Earth to rebound hundreds of feet, maybe 1,000, 1,500 feet. The, the fluidized magma in the asthenosphere, which is below the crust, now can begin to flow laterally into that region that's, that's rising because it's creating a space. Likewise, what's happening is you're now compressing the ocean floor because you're raising the, the sea level by hundreds of feet. And that's an extraordinary amount of weight. Now, if you look at at the seafloor, you know you under, the, the geologists understand that that the oceanic crust is the thinnest crust, and it's some of the thinnest crust on Earth is along the along the Mid Atlantic Ridge, and right there flanking the Mid Atlantic Ridge is the Azores Plateau, and it's roughly the size of Iceland. Iceland, you know, is split by the Mid Atlantic Ridge. That's one reason why it's so volcanically active. But in any case, there is empirical evidence, a considerable amount of empirical evidence, that the, the Azores Plateau, uh, large sections of it, were above sea level during the Ice Age. So now what you do is you put two things together. You drop sea level by, say, roughly in round numbers, 400 feet. At the same time, you bring up the seafloor a minimum of 1,000 or 1,500 feet, because it's likely that the, the, the depression or subsidence of the of the seafloor is actually even greater than the rebound of the, the continental landmass. And so between those two things, you can easily get a, a, a couple of thousand feet minimum of vertical relief. Well, if you do that, what happens is that the, the, these, what are now separate, it's just like your your first guest was talking about how if you drop sea level 60 feet, I think is what he said, Oak Island becomes part of the mainland. Right. Well, if you drop, you know, if you raise the sea bottom by 1,000, maybe even 2,000 feet, you drop sea level by 400 feet, what you now have separate islands now becomes basically one landmass. And mm-hmm. during the Ice Age, the, 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 um, the Gulf Stream didn't flow like it now does. It now splits in a big part of it. It bifurcates in a big part of it, flows up past... Um, British Islands, and really even up towards Scandinavia. It didn't do that. The whole thing during the Ice Age turned south, and it wrapped right around basically the Azores Plateau. So what that suggests is that if there was one place on Earth where you would have had prime habitable real estate that could have potentially been a place where a a, a relatively advanced culture could have emerged, that could have been it. I mean, there's nothing implausible about the basic idea. Now, you don't have to start bringing in, you know, you know, crystal technology and flying machines and all of that. I've often said repeatedly that, well, where I would go with it now, 
is, is simply looking at something along the lines of of a, of a maybe a, a large larger scale Phoenician type culture that that had maritime skills, navigational skills, enough mm-hmm. astronomy that they were able to um, you know navigate. Um, <clears throat> And, and see, there's really nothing really implausible about that. But you, you can't even bring up the word Atlantis to the more conventional academic types um, without immediately, you know, they basically shut down. But if you, yeah. if you look at the geology, there's nothing. Plato's geology and geography is actually quite consistent. He, he describes that, um, you know, that there were um, on the island of Atlantis, there were um, simultaneously hot and cold springs emerging. And mm-hmm. interestingly, in the Azores is one of the places in the world where you have right adjacent to each other hot and cold springs emerging. He describes three different kinds of, of rock that were used to build the temples that were uh, black, red, and white. And then if you look at the comp- geological composition, you have, a, you have a dark basalt, you have a, a light, very almost white limestone, and then you have a reddish, um, I think it's a rhyolite, if I remember right. But so, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can go through the details of his, his account, and then you begin to look at, at the Azores, and, and, you know, there has been so much work. What, what happened was after this 1978 uh, work, Atlantis, from the geological point of view, mm-hmm. what happened was that, okay, so now the geologists have said that a mid-Atlantic region is, is not plausible. So everybody began looking everywhere else. You know, and if you look at, at the dozens of books on Atlantis that have been written post 1970s, they're all basically looking somewhere else for the location yeah. of Atlantis, except yeah. where Plato very explicitly said that it was. All based on this misconception that the geology was somehow inconsistent. The other mm-hmm. thing, a factor that I find quite striking, <clears throat> is that you know he he places the, the chronology. You know, there's the, the whole chronology from Solon's uh, initial journey to Egypt, and it was Solon that um, you know heard the, the tales from the, the the elderly Egyptian priests, and then right. and then brought that back uh, to Greece. He he did a I think it was a ten year um, exile in Egypt in around 600 BC. And that's, you know, he's a historical figure. His exile is, is pretty well historically documented. You know, he uh, came back, and I think it was his grandson, Dropidus, who then passed it on to Critias the Elder. Critias the Elder passed it on to Critias, or Critias the Elder, and Critias passed it, the Elder passed it on to his grandson, Critias the Younger, who was present at the Socratic Forum where Plato heard the story. Well, so Solon visited Egypt in 600 BC and in multiple places in the dialogues the priests are telling Solon that that the whole events that brought the, about the demise of Atlantis and 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 you know they described that Atlantis actually you know had gone had had fallen from this great you know um <clears throat> you know ethically based spiritually oriented culture into basically gross imperialism and and so they came in and invaded and began taking over uh, the, the, the countries inside the gates of Heracles, which would have been within the Mediterranean. And he talks about how they basically began to enslave the, uh, the Libyans and the Egyptians and the Proto-Athenians. And, and, they, and then there was a great war, and, and it was the Proto-Athenians that sort of uh, organized all of the, 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 the cultural groups within the, the, the Mediterranean basin, and they fought off the Atlanteans 
drove them out, and then right after that there was a great catastrophe. Atlantis is described as subsiding into the ocean, and and, and it's also clear that it was more extensive because they Plato describes how um, you know there was just these tremendous floods and torrential rainfall that as part of this catastrophe that basically mm-hmm. just washed over Greece, the Greek mainland. And, and anyways, the date given for all of these events was 9,000 years prior to Solon's exile. That's what I was going to ask you. you. It's, it, yeah, and so that's Younger Dryas, right? 9,000 years what? ago. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so the Younger Dryas is now dated from around 12,900 to 11,600 years ago. Okay. And there, there, there have been there were several huge. You know, the, the the melting of the ice was not uniform. It happened in pulsed events, and the last great pulsed event was is, which was the Younger Dryas preboreal transition, also called referred to as meltwater pulse one B, is dated mm-hmm. eleven thousand six hundred years. Which is now, let me ask you before you go on. Let me just ask you something. Let me ask you. Okay, when you say pulsed event, does that mean that? that a, a huge amount of ice suddenly melted for some reason, or does that mean that there were some more fragments of an asteroid tail or something hit the earth at, earth at tremendous speeds and at great amounts of heat that would melt a, geolo- a, a, a glacial bed of some kind? Well, if you talk to a marine geologist or an oceanographer, they, they won't, they won't discuss the idea of, of, really like a cosmic trigger for the thing. What they will say, though, is yes, it was a, a period of massively accelerated melting without mm-hmm. necessarily going into what would have caused that melting. Typically what you see is that, you know, like it will often be blamed on the uh, sudden drainage of glacial Lake Agassiz, which was this massive body of almost like an inland, small inland ocean that was flanking the, the southwestern flanks of the Laurentide Ice Sheet as it was shrinking back. Mm-hmm. But then what they, to me, the failure of their, their thinking is that, well, okay, so you had this, they'll admit, okay, there was a massive influx of meltwater into the Atlantic Ocean, but what caused that meltwater? You see, that's where, there was, there was meltwater Pulse 1A, which dates to about 14,600 years ago. There was apparently another meltwater pulse at the uh, the, the Allerode Younger Dryas transition, which is dated now at about 12,800 to 12,900 years ago. Then for about 1,300 years, you had the Younger Dryas, and then at the end of the Younger Dryas, now let me explain just for a second here what the Younger Dryas was. If you go back during the, 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 the coldest depths of the Ice Age, was basically around 17,000 to 20,000 years ago, okay? In the traditional uh, chronological models, you would say this was the age of Scorpio, meaning that it was the time period during which the vernal equinox was passing or transiting through the constellation of, of Scorpio, right? Well, somewhere between fourteen and 15,000 years ago, the climate began to warm, and the glaciers began to shrink. Now, this is totally consistent with the more conventional models of, of, of climate change and glaciation and deglaciation, which are called the, the Milankovitch cycles, which basically what you have is, is the, without getting into it, it's, it has to do with the geometry of the Earth's orbit. Um, you know, the Earth is inclined on its axis. It goes around the sun in an ellipse. Um, 
and it goes through these these and it wobbles up and down somewhat. So the Milankovic <clears throat> cycles basically look at these three things and says, okay, if the Earth is is northern hemisphere is it got its maximum tilt of about 24 degrees of towards the sun and that happens at the time when uh the the short axis of earth's elliptical axis is closer to the sun in the summer it's going to be much warmer and if you mm-hmm. reverse that it's going to be it's going to be cooler and so what you have is these three factors that are constantly interplaying sometimes they cancel each other out Sometimes they amplify each other. But in any case, these processes are extremely slow, see. Now, what you see is that at the end of the Ice Age, and again, this was like between fourteen and 15,000 years ago, what you see is the climate is warming consistent with Milankovitch theory. And mm-hmm. the ice begins to shrink back. But then what happens is that at 14.6, unex- unexplicably, inexplicably, you have this massive meltwater pulse where there's this massive melting, discharging into the ocean. Ocean levels rise quite rapidly, relatively speaking. Okay, mm-hmm. Then come 12,900 years after this roughly 13, 1,400 years of gradual warming, that, that interval of gradual warming is suddenly interrupted by this massive spike of melting and sudden refreezing where you know, 1,500 years of gradual warming is erased in a matter of a decade or so. Mm-hmm. And for the next 1,300 years, during the Younger Dryas, the Earth goes back into this full-on glacial mode, full glacial cold that lasts for 1,300 years. It's so wow. named after the um, a polar wildflower called uh, Dryas octopetala, which only grows mm-hmm. in, in, in cold polar climates. And what Yeah, and what happened was in Europe during this event, um, I guess it was probably uh, biologists looking or maybe um, palynologists who study pollen, they they realized that suddenly over a period of a century or two after this uh, Dryas octopetala had disappeared from northern Europe and suddenly came back again. And they said, well, that's interesting because that seems to imply that the, the, the climate of northern Europe went from a polar climate it warmed, the, the, the uh, driest flowers disappeared, and then they suddenly returned again. So there must have been a sudden return of polar cold. This goes back mm-hmm. decades and decades ago, and that's where the younger driest, because there was an older driest, but the younger driest was the more intense of the two. So for 1,300 years, you've got re- this full return uh, to glacial cold, and the glaciers begin to expand again. Where they had been shrinking, they now start expanding again. Well, at 11,600, 11,600, you have this sudden spasm of extreme warming again. And now you have meltwater pulse 1B, and it's dumping huge volumes of meltwater into the oceans of the world. The oceans begin to once again rapidly rise. After, after so, so you picture the oceans are rising, younger dryest starts, they actually start falling again as the glaciers are growing. Then all of this is reversed at 11,600. The oceans start rapidly rising again. The glaciers start melting off. And it was almost like the Holocene, this period of of 10,000 years of interglacial warmth that we've been enjoying. It it almost looked like it, it took two spasms to kick the planet out of the Ice Age. The first one didn't work. You know, because the, the, the planet 
succumbed back to full glacial cold. The second one kicked the planet out of the Ice Age, and instead of the going back into glacial cold with the glaciers expanding again, they continued to melt, sea level continued to rise, and somewhere between about eight and 9,000 years ago, the glaciers were, for the most part, gone. Sea levels were beginning to stabilize at their present level. Mm-hmm. But it's very interesting that the date of the Younger Dryas pre-boreal transition, as it's called, when that second meltwater pulse hit and that massive warming occurred, is the same date that Plato gives for, you know, the destruction of Atlantis. Is wow. that a coincidence? See, so it's, it's almost like his chronology fits, his geography fits, his geology is consistent, but, you know, people just, they dismiss this. It's all Atlantis, you know. And then they imagine a lot of the, the you know, the real, um, you know, flighty New Age things that have, you know, there's been so much stuff that's accreted around the idea of Atlantis. And I, yeah. I've known people that will go on and on and on about Atlantis. And I say, well, <laughs> have you ever even read Plato's dialogues? Well, no. Well, look, if you want to talk about Atlantis, you need to go back to the source, you know. Exactly. And, and yeah, so yeah. That's we can't, to me, yeah, not just dismiss all of that. Um, right. It's important to so, read that, um, the earliest uh, chronicles of that. But, you know, here, here's why I want to ask you, and, and then why I want to get into these floods. If we have someone like Plato talking about a, a dead civilization known as Atlantis, obviously, if they were as widely distributed, uh, their their uh, uh, independent their 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 cities, their they they were there's evidence uh, that they were around the world uh, in different places. There must have been other civilizations that are equally as old. And what I want to ask you, and I don't know if you can answer this or not, is does it, that make sense? Okay, that, 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 I mean, it's a myth, but maybe it makes sense because we have ge- geological evidence of, of landforms that may have supported Atlantis and other civilizations. But uh, they're being destroyed uh, and leaving remnants of their uh, of their existence means that we are kickstarted. The uh, civilization kickstarted after this dr- uh, younger Dryas event. Why is it so hard for science to say, okay, we're the results of a catastrophic catastrophic event? We are the kickstarted remains. We 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 are reborn from a previous civilization, rather than saying Egypt is our inception point, Mesopotamia mm-hmm. is our inception point. That I mean, mm-hmm. why can't they just... Because as Graham shows, there's evidence around the world of megalithic builders who use a technology we do not, do not understand. Uh, there's, there's evidence from one of my favorite authors, John Burke, who, who reveals through, uh, through subtle energy that the, the previous civilization was based a lot on subtle energies emerging from the earth, telluric fields, geomagnetic fields pulsing up uh, through the ground and were contained in, in rock buildings of some kind or even maybe even imbued in pyramids. It's beginning to seem like uh, there's a whole group of scientists that say maybe some of these Mayan pyramids were amplifiers of, of, of naturally occurring energy. So, my my question to you is, based on your understanding of geological events, ancient geological events, catastrophic events, doesn't it make sense that we are not 
the original dwellers of the earth, that we're one of many, many hundreds or, uh, you know, who knows how many uh, different cultures who have been on the earth, who have spawned, who have grown, then to be destroyed by, by changes. What, what do you say about that? And why is it so hard for science to even consider that? Well, you know, I, I think it really comes down to politics. Um, you know, there's a certain model that's basically a 19th century model of prehistory. It puts us at the pinnacle of civilization. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's part, partly political, partly psychological. Because, hmm. you know, going back to what Plato said, it, it's interesting um, in his account where, um, you know, the, the Egyptian priests are talking to Solon. You know, they say um, one of the, the things Solon approaches the priests and, and asks about, what, what about the great flood? And, and so the priests say, well, um, he, the priests say, well, you, you Greeks, you Athenians, you, you're like children. And, and, and Solon goes, what do you mean? And he says, well, the priest says, there's no old opinion handed down among you by ancient tradition. And I will tell you the reason for this, and I can quote almost word for word from Plato's uh, account. There have been and will be again many destructions of mankind arising out of many causes. The greatest have been brought about by the agencies of fire and water. And then he goes on to describe that, that yes, there have existed previous orders of civilization that have disappeared. It's amazing. You know, almost almost independent of the idea of Atlantis. And, mm -hmm. and you know, when you consider and you point, I, I point this out quite frequently in, in, in talks and writings and so on, that, that um, you know, modern humans are, are you know, um, I was using the, the date of 175 to 180. Graham said, well, there's even new discoveries that push the, the, the oldest modern human skeletons back to 190,000 years. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you figure if, if, if a generation of humans is, is 25 years, say, that means that, you know, we've got somewhere six, seven, eight thousand generations of modern humans that have lived on this planet. <laughs> and then you consider that, well, you go back, you know, when my grandfather was born, the main mode of transportation for most people was horseback, right? If we go back, his grandfather right. was born, that was in the early days of railroads, you know? So, I mean, we're talking about, you know, five, six, seven generations ago, we're basically, you know, there's no steam engines, you know, there's no, uh, you know, no electricity, you know, certainly no airplanes, you know, mm -hmm. go on and on. And you, you begin to look at, at how far we've come, say, in five or six generations. Right. I, you know, and, and then you, you think, well, and modern humans have been around for 7,000 generations. You know, what could have happened that has been lost to history? And, and you know, there's this conventional mindset that just knee-jerk wants to reject these ideas without even any you know, rational consideration at all. And, and you find it on all levels. You know, it's, it's in academia. You know, when I just, you know, did this, this podcast with Joe Rogan. And mm -hmm. um, very interesting. The, it was there's great, almost by like the way. No, I heard it. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you. In the commentaries, like in the, in the, in the, the video, in the podcast and stuff, <clears throat> there have been hundreds, I don't know, maybe even thousands of comments. I've, I've kind of lost track. But as I go through them, What's interesting is that, you know, majority of them are, are very favorable. But then you have this, this contingent of, I don't know, maybe 15% of them that just savage everything that was said. 
and they're dismissing, oh, it's all crackpot theories, and mainstream yeah. science has dismissed all of this. You know, they already know that this is all BS, and, you know, these kind of comments over and over again, uh, and you right. read these comments, and you realize that the people making these comments are completely and utterly ignorant and clueless about any of this. But they've got this <laughs> yeah. really, you know, this committed opinion that they know that it's all BS because in their imaginations there's some monolithic scientific authority that has everything explained. And then there is, you know, in academia this this conservatism that just doesn't want to look at that because you've got, you know, you've got several things interacting here. You've got the, the entrenched ideas of, of gradualistic change that, you know, pretty much for most of the 20th century, dominated all geological thought. And that, you know, and the idea was that anything that interrupted that was, was, was to be ignored. You know, um, because in the early days of geology, when you look at some of the founding fathers of geology, from Buckland to Cuvier to Roderick Murchison to Sedgwick, all of these guys were basically catastrophists. Now, some of them were placed their, their catastrophism within a biblical framework. Others weren't necessarily committed to that biblical framework. But in any case, what you see is that as the uh, 19th century proceeds, you have the rise of uniformitarianism, and, and basically their attacks on catastrophism boil down to well, you catastrophists are trying to explain everything in terms of Noah's flood in the Bible, and we don't take the Bible literally anymore, so therefore you're unscientific, and and we're not, you know, we, we've rejected six days of creation, because we yeah. now know from the geological record, and therefore, you know, it was kind of, th- let's throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, so catastrophism became discredited by association with the Bible. And and what you see is that you go by the by the turn of the twentieth century, catastrophism was all but dead. And what you have is this very strict dogmatic gradualism that, that now mm-hmm. took place. And and as you read in Graham's book, he gives a very excellent account of, of J. Harlan Bretz and his yes. uh, research that began in the nineteen twenties on uh the great floods up in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me, and the the origin of the what he called the Channel Scablands, right. and how, well, basically for a quarter of a century or more, he was basically just dismissed out of hand by the geological establishment, saying, "Oh, you're trying to bring back in these biblical floods again. We know that you know there have been no big floods on the the level that you're describing, and and basically the way they discredited him was to say you you have." You have no explanation for the source of this flood water. Therefore, the flood didn't exist. But what he did was, you know, as Graham describes very succinctly in, in the book, and, and, and anybody who wants to get that story, it, it is probably the best summary of, of the whole story that I've read, um, is, that, is that what he did was just through dogged determination and, and just field work, you know, season after season after season of field work, he documented the the reality of these just inconceivably huge floods that swept over the land. And finally, in the 1940s, you know, Graham again describes how basically they they basically set up an ambush and invited them to Washington with the idea of, of dispelling this heresy once and for all. But as it turned out, there was another geologist there in the audience, um, 
or at the at the at the meeting there named J.T. Pardee, who had been working in Western Montana, documenting the existence of a gigantic body of water uh, filling the mountain valleys of, of northwestern Montana, and he called it Lake Missoula because right. where the town of Missoula, Montana now is, was in one of the basins where the water of this lake was about a thousand feet deep. And if you go wow. to Missoula today and you look at Mount Jumbo or Mount Mount um, Sentinel, which are right there next to the University of Montana, you can very clearly see the shorelines of this massive body of water left behind. Mm, wow. And so J.T. Pardee, it, it, apocryphal, but I, it probably happened, he leaned over to, to one of his colleagues, and, and while everybody else was basically saying, um, you know, you, you can't provide a source for the water, therefore there was no great flood, as you're describing, J.T. Pardee leans over to one of his colleagues and says, whispers, I know where the water came from. Well, J.T. Pardee worked for the U.S. Geological Survey, which was actually very conservative in their um, interpretation of all this and was not ready to um, em embrace this idea of these gigantic floods. Now, what happened was, and again, as, as Graham describes very effectively in the book, what they did, you know, uniformitarianism in geology basically is based on this premise that the, that the present is the key to the past. And what you do is you look at, at present features and, and processes and you extrapolate from the present into the past. And so, and, and then try to explain all of the features and formations and, and outcrops and all of the geological evidence strictly in terms of modern processes, right? Now, you know, and this is the this is the essence of uniformitarianism, and it, and it can be very effective, a very powerful tool to understand what happened in the geological past. The problem, though, it has limitations in that it's clear now that there have been processes operating in the geological past that we have not experienced in modern times, and and if anything, what what uniformitarianism has shown us is that there have been times where modern processes cannot be invoked to explain the formation of some of these things like that, that these giant current ripple fields that we talked about earlier, or some of these massive extinct uh, cataracts that have been left over in the pathways of these, of this floodwater. And so anyways, what geological community did was finally, because the evidence was so overwhelming, they finally began endorsed the idea of, of, catastrophic floods but what they did was they tried to confine it within as best they could within a uniformitarian explanation by saying well what this was was glacier this was floods uh that were formed by the breaking of glacial ice dams and mm -hmm. and we have a modern counterpart we can look up in alaska and the canadian rockies we can look in in iceland and we find examples of what are called yokelops up in in iceland where mm -hmm. you have glacial outburst floods well, the problem, the basic problem with that is, is if you look at modern examples and you look at some of the, 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 the flooding that caused the Channel Scablands, for example, the, the modern examples, even the largest ones, are not even one thousandth the scale of the floods that we're talking about at the end of the last ice age. And, and, okay. and it has been sort of, um, you know, tacitly admitted by some of the geologists, well, we are scaling up from this and... It's like they'll admit that they're scaling up, but then they don't acknowledge that there could be a serious problem, but just saying, well, we're looking at a glacial outburst flood, never mind that it. it's a thousand times bigger than the biggest modern glacial outburst floods. 
mm-hmm. see what what Pardee did, though, in fact, was showed that yeah, there was a huge body of water in these valleys of northwestern Montana, mm-hmm. Bitterroot Valley, Mission Valley, um, Missoula Basin, and so on. Um, but what he then did was he went back to a 19th century idea that came from T.C. Chamberlain, where Chamberlain was the first one who who saw the shorelines and then theorized that there had once been a ice dam somewhere to the west in the probably in the Clark Fork River Valley. If anybody listening actually wants to like look this stuff up on a map, well, Pardee picked up on that idea and said, well, there was apparently an ice dam and this this evidence of a massive body of water within these uh, valleys was because there was a big lake here, right? Yeah. And so geologists then said, okay, that's it. Now we've got an explanation. We, can, we, we don't have to abandon uniformitarianism because basically it's just a, a bigger version of what we've seen, you know, for decades uh, happening up in Iceland, right? They're holding, on, well, they're holding on to their uniformism as best they can. They're doing whatever they can they to can. hold on to it. Yeah. Yes, um, that's it. Get, Where we're at yeah. now, though, I think is, is is I'm trying to demonstrate, and I've accumulated a considerable mass of field evidence to suggest that what they're interpreting as Lake Missoula was just a part of this much larger flood. Mm-hmm. You see, and it wow. was not the source of the flood waters, but was basically, if you want to consider it this way, a temporary holding basin for mm-hmm. flood waters emanating from the melting ice massive amounts of melting ice over the Canadian Rockies. Let, let's talk about these floods now. Now, uh, is it your uh, hypothesis that they continued throughout the uh, Younger Dryas period, or was it? would you say they're more catastrophic where an impact of a formed body into the earth, from the Earth's, uh, from outside the Earth into the Earth's atmosphere, into the land, melts the ice, and then these are immediate monstrosities of flooding or is it just continue over a period of time what what is what is your theory on that my simple answer is both what you mm-hmm. have is um you see <clears throat> you have you use the word and i think it's appropriate these monstrous floods um mm-hmm. and brett j arlen brett's initially was conceiving of one big flood right by the end of his career, I think his last paper was co-authored in 1969, I think, um, or was it 65? It was in the 60s. Anyways, by that time, he had come to endorse the idea that there had been more than one flood, multiple floods, because as, you know, what happened was, you know, basically the critics, basically, you know, essentially died away, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. Brett's. Yeah, Bretz was conferred, you know, he started out as a high school teacher when he started doing this research. I think it was at the age of 96 he got the Penrose Medal, which was geology's highest honor. Which and I read in his book, which I thought that was hilarious, that he got this very, very esteemed award just before he passes away uh, yeah. after this body of work. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and then he says, you know, well, you know, he he really appreciated it, except he was disappointed that he didn't get to gloat over all of his critics because he had outlived them all. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, anyways, you, you know, as you had a new generation, particularly I, I, in in the early seventies, you see this new generation. I think the the two key players here were Richard Waite and Victor Baker who Victor Baker wrote a really uh, 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 seminal 
work in 1973 where he did the, the paleohydrological analysis of the of the flood paths and actually even concluded from his more sophisticated modeling that had than that that had come before concluded that the flows in some cases were even larger double the scale of what Bretz and Pardee had estimated um mm -hmm. and 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 so what you see is that you get a new generation of geologists that weren't quite so you know constricted by this this dogmatic uniformitarianism but but as as Graham describes you know they still attempted to to try to force the flooding into this uniformitarian model and um <clears throat> I think what you see is that you know it, it it's they begin to look at the, the, the vastness and the complexity of the erosional and depositional landforms left in the wake of these floods. They realized, you know, it, it's almost impossible, especially within the framework of this glacial, uh, glacially dammed lake, that it was impossible to explain this whole complex of features by a single or even a couple of drainings of a glacial lake. And so what's happened is the number of floods keep growing and growing and growing. Eventually it reached, with under the work of Richard Waite, he, he uh, theorized that there were 40 floods at least, and it's gone up to now some work says even 90 floods. And I think what has happened here is that the whole modeling of this, this these flood landscapes has become Ptolemaic in its complexity. By that, what I mean to say is that, you know, in, in the old pre-Keplerian models of the solar system where earth was placed at the center and they used the the uh, cycles and epicycles and efferents and all of this what you see is if you look at this ptolemaic model in order to explain the discrepancies and the vagaries between the model and actual observation the model kept getting more and more and more complex until finally by kepler's time it was just unwieldy and then he came in and said, wait a second. Well, Copernicus said, let's put the sun at the center. And then Copernicus said, and let's make the orbits elliptical rather than circular. And once those two things happened, everything fell into place. And and the, the post-Copernican model became much simpler than the Ptolemaic model. And I think that when, in, in terms of what mainstream geology is now doing in, in their interpretations of these great floods has become Ptolemaic in its complexity. And, and I'm saying we need to just go back and I think correlate these, these floods with the meltwater events, the melting events that I was referring to earlier, the meltwater pulse 1A, uh, the, the uh, Allerode Younger Dryas transition, and meltwater pulse 1B, where it now seems like there were three great pulses of meltwater. And that so my thinking now is that rather than a, one single flood, there were three floods of extreme magnitude. Um, mm -hmm. the, final, the final stages of this, and I think this is partly where, where it's become confusing, is that even after Meltwater Pulse 1B, you still had probably a million or more cubic kilometers of residual ice. And between... 11,600 and say the next 2,000, 2,500 years, that ice melted away much more gradually. And what that did, though, is even though because you, it was still a considerable mass of residual ice, the floods that were created by the, the, the more prolonged melting of this ice still left a considerable imprint on the landscape. And without having images to show you and so forth, um, 
it's it's difficult to describe, but you have layers and and things in the in the in the back flood areas where you can see the evidence of of a, of sm- smaller, still large by the modern scale, but but much smaller compared to the the largest scale floods that we see throughout the um, the the flood landscapes of of Montana and Washington. Because when you look at places like Grand Coulee, you basically are looking at somewhere around 300 or more million cubic feet per second. Moses Cooley, okay. same thing. Um, to give you an example of, of, or a sense of what that means is that if you take every single bit of flowing water on Earth, meaning every river, every creek, every stream, think of every river on every continent, the big rivers, the Nile, the Amazon, the Mississippi, um, you know, if you think of the Obe and the Thames and the Danube and the the, 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 the Yellow River of China, you take all of these rivers, every river on Earth, add them together and multiply by somewhere between 10 and 20, and you will have one of the flows of these great meltwater floods, such as wow. created Grand Coulee. <clears throat> so it's completely outside of anything that we have experienced in modern times. Okay, so, so let, me, let me just stop yeah. you right there. I want you to give our listeners an example of uh, what you have discovered in terms of a, 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 North, a North American flood, uh, the evidence of its path and what the estimates are on its uh, volume, water volume. Now, I know the floods that you describe and uh, uh, that Graham describes from you in his book, uh, Magicians of the Gods, basically have, they're so strong, they can pick up... Uh, megaton boulders and use them to etch valleys and things like that. So these are not the typical flood that we consider where it's like, oh, it's a lot of water. These are these are cutting floods. Would you say, how do you describe a flood like that, by the way? How do you describe <laughs> a flood that cuts valleys? Is there a term you, for you that? Don't, yeah, well, not really. You, because you, you don't describe it in terms of mo- modern floods. I mean, the closest you mm-hmm. would come to in a modern flood would be like uh, a dam failure. If you look at the Grand Teton uh, flood of 1976, yeah. where the Teton Dam burst, or the so Saint we can't Francis really imagine flood. what these floods are like. Then, okay, no, you okay. You, you can't. They're, they're on such a scale. I mean, picture. I mean, these floods. I, I on in some of my uh, uh, presentations that I do, I've created graphics to try to convey to somebody what we're looking at, and basically. One of these flood flows, like one of the places I use is a cross-section in the Clark Fork Valley of western Montana, mm-hmm. where the flood that flowed through there was seven miles wide and, and, and varied between 1,000 and 2,000 feet deep. You go oh, and you God. put a cross-section like that on any major metropolitan area in the United States, and basically a flood like that could completely, completely just wash away. If it flowed, I showed a graphic, I did a graphic, for Joe, where I took the skyline of, of Los Angeles, and I mm-hmm. juxtaposed a cross-section of one of these flood flows on that. And basically, once you see that, you realize, well, a flood of this magnitude would completely wash away any metropolitan city on Earth that it mm-hmm. encountered. Literally. Mm-hmm. I mean, the tallest building in Atlanta is the uh, Bank America building. It's 1,060 feet tall. Mm-hmm. In the Clark Fork River Valley, the water was double that. And, I mean, I've had people take people and say, take here now and look at that tall building. 
right, 1,060 feet tall. Try to imagine now a flood that's seven miles wide and twice that deep and moving 60 miles an hour. Wow. Well, you can't, you can't even visualize. You can't, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine. What we need, I'm telling you, uh, uh, is that what we need is a major Hollywood blockbuster movie, sort of documentary style where we have the best special effects uh, <laughs> wizards on the earth. To yeah. try to show people, and, and look, this isn't something, this isn't sci-fi fantasy. This really happened. Mm-hmm. It really happened. Um, and, and once people begin to get this understanding of, of how extreme, and, and see, here's, here's the thing. We are uh, realizing now that these floods, while what we see in the Pacific Northwest were some of the most ex- spectacular manifestations of these floods there were floods all over the earth <clears throat> you know there was there are floods on the same scale that are now being documented near the altay mountains uh at the border between china mongolia and siberia that are on mm. the same scale maybe even larger wow. maybe even larger and one of the things that i've done is pretty much you know like uh oh, a couple of months ago i spent not quite two weeks up in british columbia because what I was doing, which is, you know, obviously you know where British Columbia is, what I was doing sure. was basically documenting the evidence that the source of these floods was up there. Uh, it wasn't western Montana. The western Montana was just one pathway in, in, in the floods. But as we came across, uh, as I, with Graham, from, from Portland to, to the Twin Cities of Minnesota, what I was trying to get him to understand was that you know, there were these floods, these meltwater floods emanating off the glaciers were not confined to the Pacific Northwest, but you can follow the whole entire southern margin of the great ice sheets from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean and find these this evidence of these just gigantic meltwater pulses issuing off the ice. I mean, in our con- as we started this conversation, I was describing the potholes on the St. Croix River. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was a, a flood of huge magnitude. I was describing... The floods, you know, that, that, that when I, you know, had this epiphany in 1969, well, <clears throat> one of the things that happened there was in the 1980s, I was giving a, a lecture on sacred geometry, and I was talking about scale invariance in geometry, and I said, now, you know, scale invariance that we find in geometry, where the part reflects the, the whole and you have a, a, a smaller piece, it's almost the same concept of fractalization, where no matter where you look at the scale of some phenomena, you find the geometry is consistent. And I said the other place where you find this scale invariant phenomena is in geology. And then I described my experience of looking at these two juxtaposed river channels, this very small diminutive modern one laid down in this massive five-mile-wide channel. And one of the fellows in the class who had a, had a he wasn't a profe- uh, practicing geologist, but he had majored in geology in college. He immediately stopped. He said, "No, no, 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 no." He says, "You've got that all wrong." He says, "Those that was carved out over millions of years." And I said, "No, no, I'm I'm you know I'm pr- pretty sure I'm quite sure I'm convinced that it was a, a very large flood that came through there that created that large channel." He was, "No, no, no, we we so but what it did was it really well pissed me off." And I said, "Okay." So I, I basically went and I enrolled in college, and I majored in geology, and I began studying 
really, really um, devotedly started, you know, accumulating a massive amount of material, started going through the literature, um, you know, all the references I could find on catastrophism and on flooding and, you know, climate change and all of this stuff. And of course, what I learned was that I, of course, was completely right and he was completely wrong. And that, you know, actually even now mainstream geologists admit that the Minnesota River Valley, they call it Glacial River Warren, which was roughly, they estimate, 2,000 times the volume of the modern Minnesota River. And this is now well documented. Um, but, you know, in 1969, I basically just had the intuitive sense of that. And it was only 20 years, 25 years later that I actually came upon the, the, the field documentation that said, yes, Glacial River Warren created this massive valley. It was at least 2,000 times bigger than the modern river that now occupies it. And, you know, so the thing is, and you can go all over North America, and once you know how to read the landscape, you can yeah. go all over North America, and you can find the story writ large into the landscape. Here, you know, Randall, you know, this is a book. This is a book in in, in the works. You know, a, a book on flood, evidence of flood. That's uh, either that or it's a video or uh, it's a series you got to put together. You know, <laughs> it's, it, both. I, you know, it, it's a story people need to and see. It's a story on such a vast scale that you know people don't see it. You know, it's too no. big. We're too little, and it's too big. It's you know, we're like ants crawling on the back of this thing, and it's so massive that, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of generations ago, it, you know, look, think about this. It took Brett's a quarter of a century d- d- back and forth across the Channel Scablands to create a map of it that we can now see in 10 seconds on Google Earth. Right. Thank God for Google and, Earth, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we now have ground-penetrating radar. We have satellite photography. We have Google Earth. We have... All of these ways of perceiving things, uh, you know, we've extens- extended our sensory apparatus now that allows us to really begin to put these pieces together. To me, one of the big problems is is we're so restricted by old models. And, you know, you have academicians out there and you have practicing geologists that are looking at this stuff and trying to fit it within the framework of these old models. But But the old models are just rapidly collapsing around us as we speak and i think what you see is more and more geologists because you know geology you tend to focus on very narrow you know one geologist might spend years looking at one outcrop or or one deposit you know and and up until recent times you know most geologists you know worked for u.s geological survey which was primarily uh, involved with mapping surface features they work for energy companies so they weren't really interested in in looking at these surface features they were interested in well where are the high uh, you, you know the, the the hydrocarbons deposited you know so <laughs> but what's happened now is that you know i think there's a new generation coming together that is putting the pieces together and connecting the dots and realizing that there's a whole story inscribed into the landscape of this planet that's been waiting for 10 or 12,000 years to reveal itself. And now we're standing on the threshold of, of pulling back the, the, the veil and seeing this, this story that's etched into the planet and, and, and suddenly realizing that it's going to force a complete rewriting of, of prehistory. Would you say that they, uh, I mean, there's no way to time when they hit, 
but would you say that they are within the younger Dryas, or are they in uh, a time period that is, uh, I mean, how, how do we determine when they hit? And other than the remains of the damage they did, um, uh, how do we track them? Well, what you have to do is it's going to be primarily radiocarbon dating um, because mm-hmm. within the flood sediments, you look for um, organic material. You look for organic material or volcanic deposits. Now, in some of the back flood deposits out in Washington, there's volcanic layers because during these floods, it's apparent that there was pretty substantial volcanic eruptions going on, which makes perfect sense because, you know, we were talking earlier about this extreme mass transfer, this weight released from one part of the Earth's surface and put into another part of the Earth. And there were apparently, like, for example, Mount St. Helens was undergoing extreme convulsive eruptions during these floods. Um, uh, Glacier Peak was uh, going undergoing uh, eruptions. So it, it's apparent that, or, or probable that, you did this tremendous shifting of weight on the Earth's surface that was accompanying the deglaciation and the melting and so forth could have easily triggered uh, volcanic activity, as well as seismic activity. Um, and uh, in some of the back floods, now when, when you have a main valley, like the Columbia, for example, uh, Columbia River was one of the major conduits for delivering these huge volumes of meltwater to the Pacific Ocean. But what happens is when, you know, in a normal river flood, the, the, the water will rise over a period of time. You know, we've seen quite a number of floods in the last couple of decades. You know, if you remember the, when the Great Mississippi floods of 1993, and, you know, they're looking at the flood walls in, in St. Louis there and monitoring the rise of the flood waters, um, you know, hoping it doesn't reach a certain level, uh, uh, you know, above uh, the normal datum point. Well, these floods did not come on like that. They came on more like, you know, dam break floods. Uh, we have a sudden release of a huge volume of water. And, but, but as they're moving down the main trunk valleys, what they'll do is they'll back flood up the tributary valleys. Um, you know, you've got a main river, if you can picture Cliff, you've got a main river coming down, and you've got rivers coming in from the sides that are flowing down into the main river. Well, mm-hmm. as these floods come through the main valleys, what they do is they backwash up the tributaries, right? And initially the velocity of that backwash is considerable, but as you get to the distal region of that where the water basically slows down, stops, and then begins draining back out, what it'll do, it'll lay lay down uh, layers of sediment. And Mm -hmm. in some of those places where you had these back floods, there are sandwiched uh, layers of volcanic ash, and those layers of volcanic ash can be dated. Now, one of the, the, the big last eruptions of Mount St. Helens uh, left a very distinctive ash layer, uh, which I have actually seen and collected samples of and photographed. Um, and it has been dated right at 13,000 years ago, which basically puts it right at the, um, the Aller Road, Younger Dryas transition. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's one way of dating, and then the other way of dating is through radiocarbon dating, by finding, like, organic remains of, of animal remains or tree stumps or something that's, that, mm-hmm. that are in these flood deposits. And okay. then, of course, 
by correlating those with the meltwater, the introduction of the meltwater into the global oceans. Um, that's another way. Um, so w- what I've come, my thinking is, is that there were three large-scale pulses of meltwater um, at about 14.6, 12.9, and 11.6 over a period of 3,000 years. And this is what basically uh, eliminated the bulk of the ice sheets. And then there was a couple of thousand years of the more gradual melting away of the residual ice after the last episode. Now, at this point, you see, when I did my one of my first major research trips where I spent a couple of weeks out traversing the landscapes out there was in 1998. And at that point, I had already concluded by default that it was probably something cosmic, some type of a cosmic impact that had to melt the ice sheet because I was, I basically went through all kinds of possible scenarios of where you could provide an energy source to melt that much ice so suddenly right. that the, you had these extreme floods. And the only thing I could come up with was, um, you know, uh, something cosmic, you know, an impact type event. So, um, and I was convinced in that in that trip in 98 that the source of the meltwater that caused these, you know, Missoula floods and that created the Channel Scablands was not Lake Missoula, but was in fact the the melting of what's called the Cordilleran ice sheet that was, you know, mantled the Canadian Rockies and covered all of British Columbia, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so probably something wow. on the order of at least a million cubic miles of ice. And that melted away. Well, all the southern portion of that all would have drained to the south. Mm-hmm. And Canadian geologists have been looking at this for a number of decades and concluded that there was a rapid melting of the ice over British Columbia and over the Canadian Rockies, and the bulk of it did flow south. But somehow it seems like the Canadian geologists and the American geologists have two different interpretations. The American geologists tend to be very committed to this glacial outburst flood. And I, when I went to the Dry Falls Visitor Center, I think it was in... 98 or 99, I, by that, maybe it was 99, I, I was already familiar with work of some of the, the uh, Canadian geologists like John Shaw and Bruce Rains and several others of their colleagues that had been documenting evidence for these huge uh, floods over, um, over um, uh, Canada. And, and so what happened was that I uh, talked to this geologist at the Dry Falls visitor center which is one of these big cataract complexes and i said well you know and at this time i had already realized that there were problems with the with the conventional model and i and i brought up a couple of those problems and i said well what do you think about the um you know the work of john shaw and some of the canadian geologists and he actually almost got angry and he says oh those canadians they just want to take credit for everything and you know just went on with this completely irrelevant argument didn't even address any of the, the the evidence that I was talking about, and then I began to realize that you know in a lot of the uh, you know there was almost kind of a rivalry or something going on here, and and but you know that's probably changed in the last fifteen sixteen years because I think you know I went on several field trips with with geologists that have been doing major work in this, and w- when you talk to them, you know uh, you know off of the record. They kind of, you know, you read the textbooks or the popular accounts, you know, the, the, the video documentaries that have been shown on, you know, whatever, the Smithsonian Channel or whatever. They pretty much give the textbook account. Well, there was this great glacial lake 
Um, you know, you read in Discover Magazine, there was this great glacial lake held in by an ice dam, um, and then the ice dam broke and the water flowed out, and then the ice dam resealed, the lake refilled, it did it again and again and again and again. And, and But then, you know, that's what you're going to see over and over and over again in the, um, the you know, the, the popular accounts, the conventional, the textbook accounts, if you will. If you actually engage the geologists who are working on this, as I have quite frequently, um, and talk to them off the record, they aren't nearly so certain that that's the model of, of what happened. Mm-hmm. I talked to the uh, one of the geologists who had focused most of his work and was considered the preeminent expert on the region where the so-called ice dam was. And basically he said to me was, you know, I don't really even know about this ice dam because the problem is, is that if you start talking to a glaciologist who understands the architecture of glacial ice, and then you say, or you talk to a civil engineer who understands some of the problems of trying to impound uh, huge reservoirs of water at great pressure, what, you, what you'll say is, because, you know, if you look at the tallest dam in the U.S., it's, it's uh, Hoover Dam, um, which is 750 or 60 feet high, you know, and, and, and then you go, well, wait a second, now in, in Lake Missoula, it was supposedly held in by a, a dam of glacial ice that was three times the height of Hoover Dam, right? Mm-hmm. Well, glacial ice is is going to be, you know, if you look at study a little bit about glaciology, you quickly realize that glaciers are going to be a completely, um, you know, uh, poor material to try to hold water in at any significant depths. I mean, at 2,100 feet deep, which was the presumed depth of water at the ice dam, you would have pressures in excess of 960 pounds per square inch, right? Mm. Now, if you look at the the theoretical models of of modern outburst floods, what you see is that uh, these guys like, uh, there's several of them, Glenn and and Nye, NYE, several of these guys that have done theoretical studies, basically concluded that the, the maximum depth of water in a glacial lake is going to be somewhere around five or six hundred feet, and in mm-hmm. fact, they have been criticized. Well, your theoretical model shows five to six hundred feet, but what we see in in the real world is is much less than that. And if you look mm-hmm. at modern examples, what happens is once the water hits a hundred, couple of hundred feet deep, in a few exceptional cases, three, four, maybe five hundred feet deep, the ice becomes completely incapable of retaining that water, and it gives way. Um, wow. But what, what they're saying is that out there in Clark Fork River Valley in western Montana, you had a glacial dam that held in water at 960-plus PSI, depth of 2,100 feet, and it makes no sense. Without getting into the, the, the more complicated uh, theoretical aspects of it or the, the discussion of the internal architecture of glacial ice, because particularly temperate glacial ice um, it rides on a layer of basal meltwater. It's riven with fractures and cracks and fissures and interstitial cavities. There are these features called moulins that reach from the surface to the to the um, to the base of the glacier, and and it, it just completely incapable, in my opinion, of of retaining water at anywhere near the depths and pressures required for the conventional model. Wow! And if you talk to some of these guys and bring that up, they'll hem and haw. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and a few of them, I think, and then, of course, now the, the, the newest uh, evolution in this thinking is the discovery in 2011 by 
um, Richard Firestone and Alan West and right. uh, James Cannett, uh, the discovery that at the at the uh, boundary between the Aller Road and the uh, Younger Dryas, which dates to around 12,900 years ago, they found this distinct layer of impact proxies. And right. the, the layer that they looked at had, had been previously identified by archaeologists and paleontologists who realized that there was this, what they referred to as the black mat. And, and Vance Haynes has written extensively on this. Uh, he's a paleonto- uh, paleontologist uh, who uh, basically saw this black mat, recognized that it was black, primarily also referred to as the carbonaceous layer, and black because it had so much soot in it. And the soot is indicative of wildfire. Well, you know, then you had um, the, the the Firestone Kennett West uh, team that, actually began to look at it and discovered at the base of this carbonaceous layer were abundant impact proxies, such as nanodiamonds yeah. and microspherals and, and, yeah. and uh, uh, all of the magnetic grains um, yeah. and all the rest. They, have, they show images of, uh, of uh, these micro uh, uh, bits of uh, meteorite or something in the tusks of mammoths and things like that. Quite amazing yeah. study that they made. Uh-huh. Um, but listen, um, in the few minutes we have left, I, I really I, I want to veer to what you believe and what Graham talks about, which would be a brotherhood of of uh, of knowledge keepers who may have been the ones who built uh, places like uh, Gobekli Tepe um, and, and and carried whatever knowledge was available to. Uh, a group of people who knows if it's around the world, if, if Beckley Tepe is one of uh, many hundreds or a handful of these, uh, I'm going to call them sake places of knowledge uh, where they could educate, re-educate, kickstart civilization. What, what do you feel about Gobekli Tepe? And, and do you believe that there was a brotherhood or a, a group who, who came and re Started civilization and, and and imbued them with maybe uh, the the most rudimentary or fundamentals of science, geometry, maybe even some uh, medicine and uh, ast- uh, mm-hmm. uh, astronomy. Well, I certainly don't reject that. And 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 here's the thing: um, if you look, and I think it was Graham himself that said this in fingerprints, that if we look at like um, the sudden appearance of of old kingdom Egypt and and the sudden rise of the great cities of, of Sumer and the Indus mm-hmm. Valley and so on, that what we're really seeing there is, is possibly not the beginning of something, but even the end of something. Um, you know, the, the, the idea is, is that, you know, it's, it's been easy for the critics to, to dismiss out of hand this idea that there could have been something much more sophisticated going on in prehistory. But what they – because – Basically, what they're doing is they're they're thinking in, in a uniformitarian framework. They're thinking in a gradualist framework, and right. in that framework, you know, they're going well. Where where is the the pottery? Where is the infrastructure? Um, you know, we don't see that, so therefore it didn't exist. It's kind of the same mentality that well, you can't explain how those floods originated, therefore they didn't happen. Right. But what they have not been what they have not been uh, aware of is the extent that which these catastrophic events swept over the earth 
at the end of the last ice age and really how severe they really were. Very few people. And, and you know, I have talked to many geologists about this um, and, and, and have come to the realization that even a lot of the professionals don't know because, again, like I said, you know, the, the, the geologists that are working on this flood stuff, for the most part, it's, it's a part-time thing. It's not their main gig. You know, right. they're, they're mainly working for the energy companies or the government, and this is the, what they do in their spare time, right? And, and mm-hmm. so, you know, one of the things where I've been attacked is, well, you're not a real scientist. Well, no, but I did major in geology in, in college and, and, mm-hmm. and also with a minor in astronomy and, and mathematics, and so I'm fairly well-equipped, and I've only been studying this now for, well, 40 years, and yeah, have right. actually spent more time in the field directly looking at some of this stuff than most of the prof- geologists are getting paid to do it, right? So it's like, okay, you can use that superficially to try to dismiss what I'm bringing to the table, but instead, why don't you address yourself to the actual evidence here? Now, getting back to your question, once we understand the magnitude of these events that, that, that have, have uh, engulfed the planet from time to time, you know, when we look at the end of the last ice age, what we see is that that was also the, the last great mass extinction that occurred on this planet, where you basically had half of the species of large megafauna on the planet suddenly disappearing, you know, the woolly mammoths, the saber-toothed cats, the giant ground sloths, the dire wolves, the giant beavers, the, the great Irish elk, the, the camels, the list goes on and on and on to like 120 species, right, that basically disappeared at the same time all of these events were going on. And, and if you look at the, the taphonomy, which is the study of the, the processes by which remains become fossilized, what you see is that over and over and over again, the fossils of these extinct animals are found in flood deposits. They're hmm. found in gravel pits. They're found in peat bogs. They're found in these backflood sedimentary layers where their carcasses would have been washed. Or they are found, like you mentioned, the, the mammoth tusks with the, with the embedded magnetic grains. They're found, like, for an example, an interesting uh, number of years, a couple of decades ago, there was a mammoth, uh, a mastodon found in Ohio. And when they, they looked, they, they, it was only under two feet of, of peat-type material. They were excavating to put a drain line in. They discovered that they hit something, and they dug it up, and it was a massive femur or thigh bone of a mastodon that had been broken square across, just snapped. Mm. Well, they excavated and uncovered the entire uh, skeletal remains of this mastodon, and what they discovered was that basically if you read the description of both both femurs were completely clearly snapped right into the the, 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 the backbone was shoved right up into the skull, which was smashed down into the into the muck. The one of the, the feet was embedded in the muck but had been severed from the rest of the leg as if it had been mm-hmm. sheared off. In other words, mm-hmm. the entire uh evidence was consistent with the, with the idea that this mastodon had been basically crushed by some tremendous force. Um, yeah. And the dating of it puts it right again at this, at this um, period. And now, when Thomas Jefferson was, was governor of Virginia, you know, he was very, very interested in extinct animals of North America. And one of the things that 
along the Ohio River, they had been constantly finding, digging up these mastodon graveyards. And Jefferson was very, very curious about that. And one one day he was entertaining a contingent of the Delaware Indians in the uh, in the governor's mansion there in Virginia. And he uh, <clears throat> then proceeded, once they had gotten their official business out of the way, he proceeded to ask them, because at the time they did not, Jefferson and the rest of them did not know that these great, elephants, these proboscideans like mastodons and mammoths, were extinct. He, in fact, thought that they might still exist in the western wilderness. So he then broached the subject with this contingent of Delaware Indians, and the chief then rose up and said, well, I'm going to recount to you our legends that, you know, many, many years ago, in the days of our ancestors, there were so many of these great animals roaming through the woods that it, it angered the old man above so he hurled down his thunderbolts and crushed them all and hmm. burned them all up. You know, so, so here they have this legend that's actually consistent with, you know, basically the, the story. I mean, the, the story that's emerging from the, from the scientific evidence. Wow. But to get back to your question about a brotherhood. Okay, the way I think to understand this is that if, in fact, and I think that all of the evidence now is converging upon the conclusion that that these great environmental and climate changes were triggered by something not of this earth right and and the the the, the uh, impact proxies at the at the base of the younger dryas i think are the proof of that um, the rest of it's circumstantial basically i had built a case on based on circumstantial evidence that there's nothing there's no force capable of doing that a terrestrial based force of melting that much ice that rapidly, creating that scale of flooding, right? Okay, so now we have this idea of these, these massive floods sweeping over, destroying everything in their path, probably triggered, almost certainly triggered, by something cosmic, an asteroid or a comet impact. I'm leaning now towards basically the Earth passing through the trail of a massively disintegrating comet, probably a member of the Torrid system, as, as Graham talks about in the book. Um, and I had arrived at that conclusion. Actually, we both arrived at that conclusion independent of each other um, for multiple reasons that we could perhaps do another uh, interview and I could get into that. But, but in any case, let's, let's imagine now that here in modern times <clears throat> we see – We've discovered that there's an object out there, a comet, an asteroid, whatever. It's, it's making its pathway around the sun. We track its motion, and we discover that, you know, in a decade or a few years, a decade or a couple of decades hence, it's going to collide with the Earth. What do we do? Well, you know, we have a number of options. We try to prevent the impact by deflecting it, or we, you know, try to, if we can... Um, pinpoint its its impact site precisely we obviously then evacuate that section of the planet or we have an elite that tries to keep it secret although i don't think they would be successful in that because you know if you look at half of the comet discoveries are made by amateurs in their backyard so right. you know it's not the kind of thing that could be kept secret too long or and here's an interesting possibility you uh you, you set up some kind of a refuge off planet. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, Mars. I mean, if, or, well, something even a little bit more accessible than the Mars would be what? Yeah. The moon. Think about 
Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, and we'll yeah. get into that. That's something we can save for another talk. But in any Definitely. case, we would we would we would take some kind of steps to do that. Now, if the thing came in unexpectedly, remember uh, the Tunguska event of 1908. Of course, was only regionally destructive, but it was mm-hmm. it was sudden. I mean, there was only seconds of warning time, uh, right? If if it got to the point where suddenly we in, in, in what I'm inclined to lean towards is more of a Shoemaker-Levy 9 type event, like we saw in 94, where you had 21 impacts within one week in Jupiter. And, right. and again, this is something we could talk about in a future discussion. Basically, what I've been doing is by mapping the geomorphology, the, uh, the, the landscape evidence, I'm convinced now, almost convinced, and I have to do more field research, that we can actually trace these meltwater floods to a series of epicenters of radial outflow. And and um, which would suggest that these were perhaps impact sites. In any case, um, suppose we had just enough lead time that um, you know, like, well, well, consider this. Consider what we did in in terms of preparation for nuclear war. You know, Cheyenne Mountain, uh, where they had created underground, basically an underground city to survive the event of a nuclear war, right? Well, in the case of an event like this, if we go back. 12,000 years ago, and, and we have a civilization that is able to track celestial motion, and, and we know that they could do that to some extent. I mean, they did that. You know, the megalithic remains have been real, realized by astronomers decades ago that they could be used as, as, in a sense, astronomical observatories to track exactly. celestial motion. Duncan Steele right. has written some really interesting stuff on that in his book, Rogue Asteroids and Doomsday Comets. Anyways... In the aftermath of a, of a global catastrophe, we might theorize that we would have two um, classes of survivors. Those who survived because that was their intention, they planned and prepared for it, and those who survived simply because of the luck of the draw, they were in the right place at the right time and they got spared. They were in a place that, you know, because the, the devastation was not certainly not uniform over the planet by any means. If we look at the distribution of the mass extinction, we find that North America was the most severely impacted, South America close second, Eurasia was was next in line, and Africa got spared for the most part. You know, North America lost 75% of its megafaunal species. Uh, Eurasia Mm -hmm. lost about 35%, and Africa lost 10%. Well, Hmm. that's why Africa has so many large animals today, because most of its Pleistocene mammals survived the the events whereas you know we had north america had three species of proboscideans or elephants roaming around you know you had woolly mammoths roaming around in northern california right Hmm. Um, you had giant camels roaming around you had lions that were the size of horses um well so now what we're getting back to is this idea that you would have two classes of survivors those who 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 did so by intent, and then those who did so simply by the luck of the draw. Those who survived because they were lucky basically would be wholly consumed with the the issue of survival, getting food, getting shelter. They are not going to be in a position to preserve any kind of science or knowledge or wisdom or technology, anything like that. Now, you've got the group that survived because they intended to, and they're going to be the ones who are going to preserve the knowledge. And right. what's interesting there is you can begin to look, again, you turn to the mythology, with all of these references to some higher order of 
of civilization or being or whatever, whether you refer to them as the gods or right, whoever. Or the brotherhood, as you talk about, or, 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 or people of knowledge that uh, the intent was to, to, to give the survivors the most rudimentary or not even that. It could be sophisticated means to to start their cell, the civilization again, the, the, the human, to reboot humanity. civilization. Yeah. I like to think of it in computer terms. You know, you got a computer crashing and you try to preserve as much as you can of your, of your data and then reboot the system. Right. And I think that's kind of a, an analogy that we can use. And, you know, I turned to Freemasonry and of course I've been attacked as being one of the evil Illuminati because, <laughs> because I've, been a Freemason by people who don't have the foggiest clue of what Freemasonry is about. But, you know, Freemasonry has preserved a whole body of, of legends and symbolism. And one of the, one of the uh, preeminent legends that they preserve, there's two versions of it, one with Lamech and one with Enoch. I'll get into the one about Enoch. And Enoch basically was, uh, I guess, let's see, the seventh generation from Adam. He was one of the, uh, the antediluvian patriarchs. Uh, let's see, I think he was the grandfather of Methuselah. I've forgotten exactly, but in any case, no, grandfather of Noah, rather. Um, and so he had, according to the legend, he had foreknowledge, and this legend goes way back, um, probably to the Middle Ages, and we don't know how it, where, you know, how it got to the Middle Ages, but um, there are other legends that are, that are very, uh, that have parallels with this. And um, so Enoch, was given foreknowledge that, there, that the, the, there was going to be a global catastrophe caused by a great flood that was going to wipe everything out. So what he does is he creates this underground vault with nine chambers. And within the inner chamber, he uses these uh, basically these geometric forms like a tetrahedron and encodes the knowledge in these, in these artifacts, um, encapsulates them within this underground chamber that you have to go through nine layers to get to mm -hmm. and then he sets up two pillars uh one of brass and one of marble and the idea was that the brass would withstand flood and the marble would withstand fire and inscribed on these two pillars were the basically the instructions of how to find this underground vault where it could then be opened up unsealed and Within it could be found the keys to the archaic science, and that's, mm -hmm. I mean, an actual legend that's been handed down. That's pretty amazing, and, uh, actually. Yeah, the two pillars uh, have been uh, represented. You look at any Masonic lodge, and there are two pillars that you go into the lodge. There will be two pillars standing there, Yachin and Boaz, and they represent the original Enochian pillars. And the idea being is that you enter the lodge by passing between the two pillars that represent the Enochian pillars, and then you are in this system where through the ritual and through the symbolism and through the layout of the lodge, all of this information has been encodified and preserved. So yes, wow. right there we find an example of a brotherhood. And if you look back, I mean, historically the modern Masonic lodge goes back to 1717, with the uh, affiliation or consolidation of four lodges that existed in the UK. Um, but it's clear that, you know, 
you know, again, the, the more conventional interpretations as well, modern masonry started in 1717, but it's clear that, well, no, no, there were already existing lodges that simply consolidated in 1717. But what you've got to understand is that 1717 was the first, basically the time with the social climate had become enlightened enough and tolerant enough that an organization like this could, in effect, come out of the closet. Because you go back 100 to 200 years earlier, you know, people were still being burned at the stake for heresy. Uh, right. You know, people were... And, and But you go back from, you know, go back to the Middle Ages and to the guilds of, of uh, craft builders that were building the cathedrals, and they had a, 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 a ritual structure that was basically three degrees... The Templars uh, had also the same kind of structure as the modern Freemasonry, which I believe basically came out of a fusion between uh, Templar uh, systems and the Guild Craftsmen, can sort of can f- a fusion of the two. But you go back earlier than that, you know, and you find, you know, the Roman Collegium, you, you find the Comachines uh, in Italy uh, on the island of of. Uh, Como in, in or on an island in the lake of Como in Italy, throughout the Dark Ages, they were descendants of the Roman Collegium, who were descendants of the Dionysian artificers, and each one of these groups had a had a structure, basically identical to that of modern Freemasonry, and you know the Dionysian artificers go back to at least a thousand to twelve hundred B.C., and they were probably descendants of some earlier organization that goes back you know, to Egypt and Sumer. Well, my thought is, is that when you begin to look at the, the period between <clears throat> the end of the Ice Age and the rise of modern civil, what we think of as recorded history, which is basically, you know, 4,500 to 5,000 years ago, what you see there is that, you know, after the Ice Age was over, there was a period of, of quite equable global climate, um, which has been known, called by cli- paleoclimatologists as the climatic optimum, where global climates, or at least for over large swaths of the Earth's surface, the climate was actually a degree, two degrees, maybe even a little more warmer than now. So you had long growing seasons. You had, um, you know, this is when a lot of the farming was going on, 1,000 to 2,000 feet higher up in the mountains than it now is, where you see these abandoned terraces and so forth, where they were actually beginning uh, agriculture back seven, 8,000 years ago. Right. And, and what you had... Think about this. The events that would have exterminated half the great megafauna of the planet would not have left the human species unscathed. And here you find, now there's a, there's a converging consistency here. The myths are all universally uh, agreeing that the human population underwent a severe collapse, whether you're looking at the, 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 the stories of Noah or Deucalion or Utnapishtim or any of the rest of these culture heroes that survived these great floods and devastations, it's clear that the mythology is consistent all over the world that, you know, even the North America, the Cheyenne Indians, you know, of, of the, um, you know, the Rocky Mountain foothills have legends about how they are descended from the survivors of a great flood, right, that wiped out most of their ancestors. Mm-hmm. Well, now we look, turn to the archaeological record, and we find that all around, you know, at least North America and Europe, the same thing is showing up, that these active archaeological sites, these active cultural sites of the Clovis culture uh, suddenly were abandoned. And in many cases, it was 500 or 1,000 years before uh, social activity or cultural activity resumed in these sites. Um, 
quarries that were being actively quarried suddenly abandoned. Um, radiocarbon dating of, of occupied uh, sites, of, of social sites, where suddenly the radiocarbon dating just ends for a thousand years and then picks up. Well, the, the evidence is now consistent with the idea that, yes, there was a, a major population crash during these events. Now, what happens, I think, is just like um, it, it, it's, we can look at modern examples to get a, a sense of what may have happened. With the population crash, basically you had three or four or 5,000 years of very clement climate. This would have been the period of being fruitful and multiply which basically is another consistent theme that we encounter, which would be, you know, totally in line with the idea that, that the population of humans in various places around the earth was hovering on the threshold of extinction. Um, it's been estimated that, that probably it would only take a century for, or, or two if there was no other uh, factors impacting the, the repopulation for, for the population of humans to rebound. But there probably were other factors. But in any case, I think that what you basically see is over the next, in the aftermath of these catastrophes over the next three or 4,000 years, you see the human population recovering. And then at the point where you see the dawn of modern civilization with building of pyramids and ziggurats and, and the first monumental earthwork structures in North America, in, in uh, South America, in, in um, Indochina and so on, is you basically have got to the point where you now have a viable labor pool that can actually be uh, employed in the erection of these tremendous structures. But mm. somebody, you know, if, I mean, again, Egypt, what we're supposed to accept with the conventional chronologies is basically you had a subsistence farming going on for centuries or millennium, and then within a generation or two, they're building pyramids with sophisticated yeah. geometry, yeah. sophisticated astronomy. And you can reject that, but most of the people who reject it have never really looked at it or never really thought about it, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But it clearly, when you look at it, it's there. The geometry, the mathematics, the astronomy. Oh, yeah, yeah. That came from somewhere. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's entirely plausible. I do not a priori reject the possibility that there could have been a continuum of transmitted knowledge from the Ice Age right down to the dawn of recorded history that then endured through various groups, organizations, fraternities, brotherhoods, whatever you want to call them, right really through to the rise of some of the modern institutions such as Freemasonry. My suspicion, yeah. though, is, is that when you look at, at Freemasonry, what you see is you know this incredible episode of of the, the cathedral building in Europe, where I don't know if you've ever traveled in Europe and actually looked at the cathedrals, but they are totally amazing structures. Yes. They embody, there's no question that they embody a very sophisticated science of engineering, astronomy, geomancy, getting back to, you know, the thing you brought up earlier about potentially telluric energies. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and what you see is that during the high Middle Ages, as the Dark Ages came to a close and the, the, the cold and the dark of the Dark Ages gave way to the warmth of the, the medieval warm period the, the, and the expansion of agriculture and the increase of the food base, and you see a huge uh, increase in population coming between um, like 1000 A.D. and 1100 A.D. 
And again, what happened was you had this increase in population, you had an increase in the wealth because of the, the longer growing seasons and so on, and, and after a century and a half of this is when you see the inception of the great uh, cathedral building era. Right. It lasted right up until the 1300s, and then the medieval warm period gave way to the Little Ice Age, and you can now correlate the cathedral building almost directly with the onset of the first phase of the Little Ice Age. And between 1320 and 1340, roughly, you see several things happen simultaneously. One, you see the climate growing cold, and you see a series of agricultural collapses around Europe. This mm. caused famine and people getting very hungry, which caused depression of the immune systems. And then you see the onset of the bubonic plague following right in the wake of this, which knocked <laughs> out about a third the population of Europe. And right there was yeah. the end of the cathedral building era. You see, and then it took another several hundred years to recover from that first onset of the Little Ice Age. And, and you can see this once we recognize that the climate of the planet has been very dynamic we can see that, yeah, there have been episodes of large-scale catastrophes that have wiped out whole civilizations, and then there's, a, just like Plato says, a whole series of lesser catastrophes that basically interrupt the process for a generation or several generations, and then we have to recover from that. You know, wow. And that's what I think ultimately brought the Roman Empire down. You, know, you had the mm -hmm. onset of the Dark Ages between uh, about 536 and 544 A.D., and there's now evidence that there that there was a, a serious, severe climate downturn in that decade. Dendrochronologists have actually been able to document that forest growth over Europe and North America almost came to a screeching halt for a full decade. At the same time, the onset of the Dark Ages, and you had a whole series of, of agricultural collapses, famine, and then in 542 A.D. you had the onset of the Justinian Plague, and that was followed by three or four centuries of literally of Dark Ages. What's wow. interesting there, Cliff, is that when you look at the, 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 the legends of the Holy Grail, which arose within that same period as the onset of the great cathedral building era, the, mm -hmm. the, all of the stories of the Holy Grail relate back to Arthurian times, and the quest is all set in that very same interval of 10 years where the dendrochronologists and paleoclimatologists have now documented this severe climatic downturn. And <clears throat> what's interesting is if you look at what's the story of the Grail quest, well, I mean, we've all seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? So we're all now well-informed about that particular mythos. <laughs> but, yeah. but basically the idea was is that the king – suffered some kind of debilitating illness or injury, and as he went in decline, the whole kingdom simultaneously went into decline and went from being a fecund and fertile land into a wasteland. And the way right. to restore that wasteland at the same time you're restoring the king is to discover the Holy Grail. And so mm -hmm. we could go a whole two or three hours discussing just the Grail symbolism, but in yes. a nutshell, what I'm suggesting that it is, is that it's a symbol for a lost technology of restoring the land in the wake of a great catastrophe. Wow. Amazing. This has been a real pleasure, Randall. And I want to thank you for, for uh, enlightening us uh, into uh, ancient Earth uh, and specifically the geological effects of catastrophes and, and what uh, – you know, there's so much we could talk about. What, 
you know, who who were the uh, winners who who survived, uh, and and uh, we definitely have have to have you back on. Um, how? Um, why don't you give our listeners uh, a, a a web link, a URL to yeah. to your material? I'd like to give them two of them. One is okay. Sacred Geometry International. Okay. And I have a gosh, I don't four or five hour DVD that we've we've produced uh, called Cosmic Patterns and Cycles mm-hmm. of Catastrophe. And that's going to be available. And I think Cameron, who runs the website, is doing some kind of a end-of-the-year special on it or something. So okay. you can get that, and it's loaded. It's video clips and graphics and images. It's, it's chock full of juicy stuff. And okay. then there's all kinds of links to articles that I have written, um, uh, video clips. And then the other website is geocosmicrex, R-E-X, dot, God, I think .com. Anyways, you can go there, and there's probably two dozen video clips. There's probably four or five video clips up there, short video clips, little like five-minute chunks of of me and Graham out in the field looking at stuff. Oh, wow. Discussing what we're looking at. <clears throat> so you can That's people fantastic. can go there and download those clips, watch those clips. And mm-hmm. as as I'm able to clear my schedule here, I'm working on a book my first real effort to get a book out there and there it's going to go. get into a lot of this stuff that we're talking about. Um, you know, Graham really encouraged me, said, listen, man, you got to write a book. And I said, I've been trying for years, but I've been running a business, you know, I've got building projects and everything you. was going strong. And then, you know, the recession hit and, uh, you know, so, so I'm, I'm doing that right now. I've got, about 70,000 words written so far. So hopefully wow. by summer is my goal to try to have something ready for publication. That's going to be a, a tough edit, though, because there's so many tangents. You could, you'd have to have a solid theme and then have the solid chapters. And <laughs> because that's one thing about Graham. Graham's books are not a few hundred pages. They're always four or five hundred plus pages. And I can, right. I can envision you doing the same kind of thing uh, just because – uh, you, you've studied so much, and, and you've just you've made some wonderful uh, uh, eye openers uh, in your work. So uh, we look forward to that. Listen, we want to have you back. Definitely, we'll have you back. I'll I'll contact you uh, in the new year, and let's um, let's focus on on something uh, that we haven't talked about. Sacred science or sacred geometry would be a great a great topic, or something sure. that is fresh in your mind. And 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 let's have you back. So uh, again, thanks for having uh, th- for being on the show with us. Have a great holiday, and um, um, much great success to you, Randall. We I've really appreciated and enjoyed our time together. Oh, I have too. This is the first interview I've done, I guess, in about a year or so. So I kind of was looking forward to it, and um, yeah, yeah, uh, definitely be willing to get back on. We could talk about sacred geometry and its links with with architecture and astronomy and all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, and definitely we'll I'll, uh, I'll, we'll get back to you and we'll we'll get you on again. So thank you very much and that that's uh that's the program for the day. Um I I want to remind everybody that um uh, our final show is next Saturday the 26th and I have a special special guest for you. We've tried to get him on. We actually announced him earlier uh, late summer. Uh, and that is uh, the uh, the uh, art, art 
curator and um, world traveler Klaus Dauna will be my guest. In fact, it's going to be a pre-recording. He is uh, in a dig right now in uh, the Philippines. Uh, it's a very, very hush-hush dig. Uh, we only can talk a little bit about that, but he is going to talk about this new ground-penetrating uh, system that he's developed that um, Carmen Bolter spoke about in uh, Egypt and uh, actually has done some penetration of uh, a landform and has discovered these uh, massive vaults underground that are now being uh, ascertained as man-made, sophisticated uh, tunnels. He will talk about those as well as a number of other items in our next program. So Merry Christmas to you. Have a great Christmas, and I will be back with you next Saturday for another program. Check this out, Mom. I can save $200 on a Microsoft Surface 3 tablet when I get a Lumia smartphone on AT&T Next. $200? For a college student like you, this is bigger than microwavable noodles. Whoa. Slow down, Mom. Save $200 on a Microsoft Surface 3 when bundled with any Lumia smartphone on AT&T Next. AT&T. Mobilizing your world. Limited time offer select locations includes Microsoft Surface 3, 64 gigabyte only. Microsoft Surface 3 requires two-year agreement. Must activate wireless service on both devices. Early termination, activation, or upgrade, and other fees, charges, and restrictions apply. See a participating store for all for details.